0: And
1: hello
2: Hello everybody, it is Saturday night, April the 16th of 2011, I'm Walter Hughes, hope you're all doing well out there. Patricia and I are scheduled to have a special guest, and we'll get to that very soon. But first, here's our prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for the wonderful opportunity of being on the station. Look after all our friends who are around the world at the time who might be facing some serious trouble like in the Middle East and in Japan. Bless the listeners out there who might be going through difficult times, physically, emotionally, or financially at the time. We ask you to put your loving arm around each one of them. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to pull in a little bit of a clip from Fibber McGee and Molly while Patricia and I will go get a special guest.
3: The Johnson Wax program with Fibber McGee and Molly.
1: <laughs>
3: the makers of Johnson Wax products for home and industry present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn and Phil Leslie, with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. <laughs> know that the use of wax is a very old custom? The old Romans and Greeks both used it on such things as the prows of their ships and their shields. The ancient Egyptians used wax to protect their paintings. In fact, that's why some of those old murals have come down to us so well preserved. The fine furniture made by Sheraton was wax protected. Also the floors of beautiful old French chateaus. So it was natural for us to use wax extensively in our own homes, on our floors, furniture, woodwork, and for many other things, such as leather goods, Venetian blinds, picture frames, and lampshades. It was the makers of Johnson's Wax who studied waxes scientifically and produced the perfect uniform blend to give you greatest beauty, maximum protection, and ease of use. You can now buy this famous Johnson's Wax in three forms, paste, liquid, or cream. It's used by good housekeepers the world over. It is secretly believed in some circles that the Elks and various other men's clubs were organized by women to get their men out of the way so they could do their housework in peace. And here at 79 Westful Vista, one of them is trying to get her spouse out of the house as we meet Fibber McGee and Molly. Go on, McGee. Get out. Go
4: on. Scoot. Mother has work to do. Yeah, but where'll I go? Oh, go to a movie. I'd like to have you see the one at the Bijou. Oh, well, what is it? I don't know, but I'd like to have you see it. <laughs> Look, dearie, Buell and I are cleaning house, and you're underfoot like a fallen arch.
5: Oh, well, I'll keep out of the way. I always lift my feet when you want to vacuum under me, don't I?
4: Well, it isn't your feet, dearie. I want your whole big, beautiful, handsome, well-knit body out of here. <laughs>
5: Whiz, I I just can't walk the streets, can
4: I? Well, go to the public library and read a good book. A good long book. Yeah.
5: The only good long book they got is Anthony Adverse. And that's out. How do you know? I got it. <laughs> I'm scared to return it, because I owe $77.12 on it. Well, uh,
4: maybe they'll make an adjustment.
5: Yeah, that's what the trainer at the Elks did when I sprained my neck playing handball. He made an adjustment and for three weeks I walked around with my head under my left arm.
4: (laughs) Well, if the trainer at the Elks, the Elks, that's it. Why don't you go down to the club?
5: I thought you says I've been spending too much time down there.
4: Oh, I say the silliest things. I think it's a wonderful institution, really. Go on, sweetheart, go on down to the Elks. Hmm? And when you get home with your lungs full of cigar smoke and your pants full of pool chalk, I'll have my housework all done.
5: (laughs) Okay, okay, but you talked me into it, remember? And it may be expensive too. We play peepool pool for a nickel a point.
4: <laughs> Dearie, today I don't care if you play drop the handkerchief for nine dollars a drop. All Buell and I want around here is nobody.
5: Well, on second thought, I don't think I better go. It looks a little like kind of like rain.
4: Oh dear. Well, maybe you can get a ride with somebody. Alice is going to the airplane plant very shortly. And the car that picks her up goes right past the Elks.
5: Say, that isn't a bad idea. I'll ask Alice if Oh, here she is now, McGee. Hello,
4: Alice, dear. Hello, Mrs. McGee, Mr. McGee. Hi,
5: kid. Look, you're leaving pretty quick for the airplane plan, aren't you?
4: Yes, I am.
6: I'm getting there early today because I have to instruct the new employees in how to adjust a centrifugal equalizer on the universal compensator and the hydraulic midsection booster gear. Oh. <laughs> they always have trouble getting the lock flange clearance past the binder flap.
4: You don't say (laughs) How ridiculous Incidentally, Alice, that's an awful cute suit of coveralls you're wearing Oh,
6: thank you I designed these myself, Mrs. McGee The only coveralls I could buy made me look like I've been smuggling wheelbarrows.
4: (laughs) Pretty
5: sharp outfit, kid. What's that little pocket on the side there?
6: Oh, that's where I keep my lipstick and compact and mirror and comb. It was my own
4: idea. Yeah, but why is the pocket sewed up so that you can't get at them? Well, that
6: was my boss's idea. He said they could assemble four bombers while I was correcting nature's mistakes.
5: (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm ready to go whenever you are, Alice.
4: Go where, Mr. McGee? Well, he wants to ride as far as the Elks uh, Club with you, Alice.
5: You got a car picking you up, haven't you, Alice?
6: Why, uh, why, yes, Mr. McGee, but creepers, (laughs) it isn't mine. It's a fellow who works at the plant's car, and it's his turn for the carpool this week. Well, McGee doesn't care,
4: Alice. He'll ride with anybody.
5: Why, sure, sure. What do I care if I'm seen riding along with a bunch of people in working clothes? (laughs) Why, why, some of those people might be just as good as I am.
6: (laughs) Oh, now, Mr. McGee, let's not go all to pieces about it.
5: Well, they are. In fact, kid, when a fellow of my standing mixes with the working classes, that's democracy at its
4: best. And that's egotism at its worst.
6: (laughs) Well, anyway, Mr. McGee, it's only a coupe and there are six of us in the carpool. There wouldn't be room for you.
4: Oh, for sure. Crowding doesn't bother me. I'm no snob. Don't crowd yourself in if it makes everybody uncomfortable, dearie.
6: Oh, well, it isn't that, Mrs. McGee, but it would be so hard on the tires it would defeat the whole purpose of carpooling. What do you mean? Well, the, the whole idea is to conserve cars. There's a terrible shortage of new tires and cars and gasoline, and it'll get worse. Didn't you know that already over four million cars have had to be scrapped? Heavenly days, four million.
5: I don't believe it. I think somebody's got the figures all wrong. Why, Mr. McS2? Because I read the other day that the average car traveling from home to work carries an average of two and a half people. I read that, and that's ridiculous. It's got to be either two people or three people. <laughs> just half a people just don't make sense.
4: Well, just the same, dearie, Alice is right. They formed that carpool with six people to save the use of five other cars. And if you overload this car, it certainly won't help anything.
6: I'm terribly sorry, Mr.
5: McGee. Oh, that's okay, kid. I ain't one to push myself in where I'm not wanted. I was merely trying to kill. Oh,
4: uh, there's
6: my kind now. Goodbye, Mr. McGee and Mrs. McGee. Goodbye, dear. Uh,
5: here, here's your tool chest, Alice. Oh. I'll pick it up for you. It's, ooh, what do you got in there? Sledgehammers?
6: No, just my lunch. <clears throat> just your
5: lunch? Then why is it so heavy? My gosh, I... Oh, oh, here you are. I had my foot on it.
6: (laughs) Well, well, I've got to run. Goodbye now. I'm sorry we can't take you, Mr. McGee. Personally, I'd just love to drop you off someplace.
5: Uh, Fine state of how do you do. Can't even get a ride downtown. I got plenty of rides
4: during the last war. Well, in the last war, we didn't have any B-29s using more gas in an hour than an average driver uses in five years, dearie. Why don't you take the streetcar down at the Elks? What? Spend a nickel just for a little short trip?
5: No, sir. It's reckless spending like that that leads to inflation. <laughs> you. I'll get me a ride with somebody. Hand me my magazine, will you?
4: What magazine?
5: The one on the hall table. The one on Victory Gardening.
4: What's the name of it?
5: The Weeders Digest. All right, <laughs> <laughs> George. I'll just sit here and I'll get me a ride
4: down.
3: Billy Mills in the orchestra
1: and
2: the sweetheart of all my dreams. And we'll t- turn down the Fibber, Mickey, and Molly show and say hello to
0: Patricia. Hello, Walden. Hi, everybody, and happy Saturday. We have a guest tonight. I know you've been expecting him and looking forward to hearing him again. It's Mr. Claire Schultz, who, this is your trilogy for this year. You will have, um three times, and we're still not going to run out of information to talk about. Originally, in February, you were with us for Fibber McGee and Molly on the Air, 1935 to 1959, which was your first book. Is that correct?
7: That is correct.
0: Okay. And then we were fortunate enough that you came back and joined us last month to talk about your most recent book, On the Screen, On the Air, On My Mind. And that is also put out by Bear Manor Media. Both books are available at Bear Manor Media, but they are the the one that we're talking about tonight, which is on the screen, on the air, on my mind, is also available through Mr. Schultz directly, and we're going to talk about that later. So we are just so happy that you're, you're able to come back because we got, uh, you talked about uh, about one half, the first half of the book, and it is enormous. It is such a wonderful piece of work. Tell me how, how many pages it has, please. It has
7: 587 pages including the index.
0: And it's all in one volume and it's really well done. I mean, it's a, it, it just is a well done. You have to, you have to see it to understand it. Um, I've identified you as a radio and film historian. Does that match what I should be talking about? Yes. That is,
7: okay. That's a pretty good description.
0: I have four-year background, teacher, librarian, former Archives Director at the Museum of Broadcast Communication, and writer, and author. Your credits include many articles about film and radio and collectibles as a source of memorabilia, inside information about radio and premiums, and I call you the Keeper of
7: Memories. Well, that's a a nice title.
0: Well, I I think it fits, and we're so happy to have you. Welcome back.
7: Well, I'm glad to be back here, and... To continue on and talking about the the book and other aspects of those golden days of yesteryear.
0: Would you give first um, an overview of the book in general? What did, what will people look at when they pick up this book?
7: Basically, the book is a compilation of, for the most part, profiles that I wrote about movie, TV, and radio stars, and articles about radio programs in the 80s and 90s, and in the first decade of this century, for magazines like Old Time Radio Digest and Nostalgia Digest. There are also articles on collectibles that I wrote for magazines like Paper Collectors, Marketplace, and Today's collector. And so I looked back on a number of those articles, revised them, brought them up to date, and put them into various categories for the book, and then added a number of other features. About 30% of the book is articles and essays that are brand new to the publishing world but they've never been collected uh, before, and because a number of these magazines are somewhat esoteric, a number of people may never have seen the articles, But so by putting them all together in a book, they have a collection of articles, essays, stories that can bring back those golden days for many people.
0: Now, when you were with us the last time, which was just last month a few weeks ago, you talked about primarily movies and movie stars, some of the personalities we are familiar with and names we recognize. Tonight we're up to the section on radio shows. Would you talk a little bit about the section first before we get into the specifics?
7: Yes, um, I can do that the The articles, as they appear, are somewhat in the order that they uh, appeared in Old Time Radio Digest. Uh, There are articles on Fibra McGee and Molly, Nightbeat, The Stan Freeberg Show, The Phil Harris, Alice Faye Show, The Great Gildersleeve, R. Miss Brooks, Henry Morgan Show, there's an article on Bloopers, The Jack Benny Program, Quiet Please, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, Pat Novak for Hire, The New Edgar Bergen Hour, a article on some shows that were little known shows that I call forgotten shows to remember, and then a kind of a summary article at the end in which I talk about how the, the best years of radio were actually those after World War II. And so the radio articles were headed under a category called the radio shows. And then there also were articles on The collectibles, Tom Mix Premiums, Big Little Books, Photo Play Editions, Uh, there's some stories, one of which appeared in a collection published by Bear Manor called It's That Time Again, and the other two were New Stories, and then there's articles on Burma Shave Signs and Johnson Smith Catalogs, and then there's some selected short subjects in which I talk about a a variety of, of topics related to movies, music, and mores. But the section that might be of primary interest to our listeners is radio shows because this is what Yesterday USA specializes in our radio programs. Fibber McGee and Molly is one that we've covered to some degree and the introductory article under radio shows called Fibber McGee and Molly all was good for a laugh was actually one of the first pieces I published on radio back in 1989. And some of that served as the introduction for my book on Fibra McGee and Molly in a different format. But we can talk about any of the programs that are in the radio show section. We we can take them in order or pick any shows that might be of interest. We don't have to discuss them all. But... Could we spend
0: a couple of minutes talking about Fibber McGee and Molly? That's the show we play on Saturday nights. This started out to be the Fibber McGee and Molly show with Walden and Patricia, and we've just kind of branched out from there. But we do stay with Fibber McGee and Molly and play at least one show. 90% of the time we get to play a show, and it's always Fibber McGee and Molly. And one of the things that we have talked about at different times is – the staying power of this particular show and why it was so lovable, the characters were so lovable, why it endured for so many years. Would you talk a little bit about that?
7: Great writing and and great casting. Uh, Don Quinn uh, was a, a master and later joined by Phil Leslie. There were so many different, attractions that Don Quinn reached into for his bag of tricks. So many different gags that would surprise us. We came to look forward to Fibber and Molly, but we actually came to look forward to those visits by the old-timer and Wimple and Doc Gamble and Gildersleeve and Mrs. Uppington Latrivia because we knew that coming with them was going to be uh, a running gag, uh, that ain't the way I heard it, or jokes about Sweetie Face, or Mrs. Clatterhatch, or You're a Hard Man, McGee, or The Trivia's Blow Up. Even the characters that were on scene most of the time, like Mert, except for that one appearance she made, uh, and Uncle Dennis, who was on scene most of the time, Aunt Sarah. We came to recognize them as being members of the the cast that were offstage, but we still welcomed references to them because we knew that when Mert came on the phone, there was going to be that that classic gag. There was so much that that Quinn displayed before us. It might be riddles, malapropisms, old jokes, twists on old jokes, one-liners, non-sequiturs. Uh, some sarcasm, hyperbole, uh, the, the great tongue twisters of, of Fibber with the alliteration. There had to be something we liked because there was so much to choose from. It was a buffet of delights, and we could take what we enjoyed, and if a certain gag missed, five seconds later there was another gag coming along, that we might enjoy. So by the end of the program, we had gotten some laughs, Whether even if some of the gags misfired, we still had an enjoyable half hour.
0: I want to talk about Don Quinn and Phil Leslie for just a minute, but I want to remind people we're talking with Mr. Claire Schultz, who is author of On the Screen, On the Air, On My Mind. His second book, through Bear Manor Media, which is BearManorMedia.com, And um, please give us a call with any questions or comments you have. We're concentrating on old-time radio this time through, but the book covers old-time radio and earlier movie stars and movies. So we're at 714-545-2071. 714-545-2071. Tell me about Don Quinn and Phil Leslie and how their styles differed so dramatically from other comedy writers.
7: I think it was the human touch of the fact that Quinn and Marion and Jim Jordan were small town folks from the Middle West. And they never lost that that touch with the, the common the common person. Uh, they knew what made people laugh. They knew what people expected once the characters were drawn. And They didn't deviate from that package. They kept River and Marion the same human, lovable kind of people that they were. Just recently, I had a chance to listen to that show when Molly came back from her long absence. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The
0: budget, yeah.
7: And it was again was so remarkable how the contrast between the two. Fibber was the fibber we knew, and Marion was still harping away in the old Irish character that she had had before. But it wasn't long uh, before 1939 was over when they were into the kind of characters that we really came to, to know and love for all these years.
0: Now, uh, 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 two weeks ago, we talked with Donnie Pitchford, who is the president of the National Lum and Abner Society, and one of the things we touched on was that Lum and Abner did not do well when they switched from a no-audience format to performing in front of an audience. The show just changed and the, the, the humor was different. The opposite happened with Fibber McGee and Molly, where when they lost their ability to perform in front of an audience, the show changed, and it was not for the good. Um, they, they lost a little bit of spin, and so uh, t- tell me what the difference between Lum and Adner losing it in front of an audience and Fibber McGee losing it when they lost
7: their audience.
0: What made up the differences there?
7: I kind of hinted at that in my introduction to Fibra McGee and Molly on page 12 of that book. Um, Lum and Abner and Vic can say they both thrived in that quarter hour environment with just the players present and primarily just the two characters, Goff and Locke going back and forth and they playing most of the parts. Mm-hmm. When they went over to the live audience, they opened up with more characters and also they tended to get away from what made the show so homey in that Abner became kind of a wise guy. They had to be generating laughs every 30 seconds or so with an audience you have to be looking constantly ahead to your next laugh line when Love and Abner were just performing in their own homey style just the two actors there may not have been any laughs during the entire 15 minutes it was more smiles than laughter when Fibber and Molly went from the 30 minute format in front of an audience to a 15-minute format with no audience, the the writing changed to almost developing a serial format because they were on five days a week. Phil Leslie and uh, Ralph Goodman, or Len Levinson, whoever was doing the writing, were more concerned with developing a story that could extend out three, four days and bring the people back again the next day. Um, They almost were trying to copy the soap opera format. There always was a pretty much of a definite end to the episode. The only exception comes to mind is the, the baseball cologne one that we never do find out what happens to that uh, at the end of the baseball cologne episode but in almost all the other 30 minute episodes whatever plot that River had decided or planned to have came to some sort of a resolution Mm -hmm. With a number of the 15-minute episodes, even John Wald at the end of the 15-minute episode would say, as a a teaser for the next day, he would say, tune in tomorrow to see what happens. So the concentration wasn't on generating laughs during the 15-minute era. It was more, how can we make the show uh, progress from one day to the next?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So it was really telling a story rather than a half an hour entertainment and a complete unit within that, that half an hour. That, that's really interesting. Now you picked, um, there are there are 18 different sections within the category of radio shows, but it looks like 16 of them deal specifically with individual radio shows. Now, choosing 16 radio shows out of the hundreds and hundreds that radio produced and put out and it's uh, before the Golden Age and even after the Golden Age. How did you narrow it down to 16
7: shows? Well, these were just the shows that appealed to me. If I had to pick one radio show that from the time I started really listening to shows critically in the mid-70s to today that has appreciated significantly in my estimation... It would probably be the great Gildersleeve uh, in listening to those shows. When I first started listening in the, in the early 70s, I really didn't pick up on all of the, the quality that's involved there until I listened to the shows in sequence several times. A number of the other shows that I picked were ones that just appealed to me because I enjoyed Frank Lovejoy's Mannerism. Nightbeat was a natural because I have an affinity for satire. So Stan Freeberg and Henry Morgan were naturals. And I enjoy Eve Arden, so R. Miss Brooks, and of course Gail Gordon's one of my favorite second bananas, so R. Miss Brooks was a, a logical choice. The Phil Harris Alice Faye show was one that was popular with me because I thought it was one of the funniest on the air. And the Jack Benny program was one that I I picked because of a book that was coming out that Bear Manor, Bear Manor published about Jack Benny on um, his life and his work. And Ozzie and Harriet, the article on that show I picked was a defense of Ozzie and Harriet, trying to defend it from the the people who picture it as being not an accurate portrayal of life in the family life in the 40s and the 50s the the Pat Novak for hire uh, was simply because the the show just cried for an article because of its its self parody and Edgar Bergen I, I've often thought was underestimated so I wanted to write one in defense of him and the forgotten shows uh, to remember uh, I wanted to pick a few shows that maybe were overlooked. And The Best Years of Our Lives is somewhat of a defense also of radio programs. Uh, I feel a number of people who don't know much about old-time radio just tend to think of of radio being at its peak in the 30s and perhaps during World War II. But I, I defended by giving examples from a number of programs how the best days of many programs was after World War II. So it was somewhat just shows that appealed to me or actors that appealed to me. There were a number of others that, that could have been done. I've, I've often thought about doing one on Duffy's Tavern. I haven't yet, but I, I may do one uh, on them, primarily on Archie. So that's kind of the reasons that I, I chose them. It wasn't that anybody assigned any of those Mm -hmm. shows to me. Unlike some of the Hollywood profiles, Chuck Shaden, who was the editor of Nostalgia Digest, I was a regular uh, when Chuck was editor of the magazine, and I had articles in when it was published six times a year, four or five times a year, and he would call me and ask me, I'd like to do an article for this summer or this fall on so-and-so. And so so a number of the articles, nine of the articles that I, I wrote about Hollywood stars, were by his request, uh, not necessarily that I didn't like those people. It's just that I wouldn't have written the article had not he requested it. Uh-huh. Um, so, but the radio shows were all ones of of my choice. And Bob Burchett, the editor of Old Time Radio Digest, is always asking for me to submit articles. Uh, even to this day, he he's asking me to submit more articles to the the magazine. So. That's, in essence, why I picked them, favorites of mine, shows that I really enjoy.
0: Can we start? Well, let me, let me remind people, we're talking with Claire Schultz, who is author of On the Screen, On the Air, On My Mind. That's what we're talking about tonight. It's a wonderful compilation of articles, so it's a pick-up-and-put-down book. You don't have to sit there and worry about where you left off the next time you pick it up. Um, they're in bite-sized pieces.
7: That's right. Most of the articles are about five to seven pages to try to convey the essence of a program or capture the distinctiveness of the person profile. And my email address, if people want to contact me, it's an easy one to remember. It's wistfulvista 79 at Um. If they're interested in, in getting this book, we may repeat this offer later on, they can contact me at that email address for information about the book. It's thirty four ninety five plus five dollars shipping. And in this day and age some people might say, well forty dollars is a lot of money, but when you consider what gas prices are now, forty dollars doesn't even fill up half a tank of gas. That will get you to the restaurant and back, right? Right, and the gas will be gone in a week, whereas this book will will give you memories for quite a while. If a person does order directly from me, they will not only get an autographed copy, but they'll also get two free items, two free premiums. Uh, they'll get an arcade card. Uh, an arcade card, I showed two examples on page 332 of the book. And on the front cover of the book is a Dixie Cup lid of Bob Hope. Uh, Those arcade cards of movie stars, during the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you could go to a penny arcade and for a penny you could get an arcade card of a movie star, a black and white photograph of a movie star. And then from 1930 to 1954, when you got a little cup of ice cream, you took the lid off there'd be a photo of a movie star or a TV star a radio star. And that would be for free as a little bonus for choosing a Dixie cup. I will send to anybody who orders the book from me not only an autographed copy, but also I'll send them one arcade card and one Dixie cup lid. And these will be fide stars that you would recognize from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. For instance, I sent to Patricia a... Card of Burt Lancaster and a, or oh, I guess it was a Dixie cup lid of Shirley. Shirley Winters. Shirley Winters, right? Um, another uh, radio host that I was talking with with an interview, I sent to that individual an arcade card of Alice Faye and a Dixie cup lid of Gene Kelly. Those are two personalities that anybody who's familiar with movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and also the radio show of Alice Faye and Phil Harris would recognize. So this is a way that readers can actually hold a piece of the past in their hands as they reminisce about those bygone days. And as I said last time, you don't even have to send in a box top for this. This is all free and you can have the thrill of going to your mailbox and getting a premium.
0: And these are the real things. These are are
7: not not recreations or or reprints. Reproductions. No, they're not reproductions. They're actually original ones from my collection, and incidentally, the on the front cover of the book, the images there and all of the images in the book, there's over 140 of them, came from my own personal collection of photographs, sheet music, magazines, premiums, movie posters, and other show business memorabilia. They're not stock images taken from the internet or photos people have seen in dozens of other books. Uh, For instance, just a few pages into the book, there's a two-page spread of Hollywood star stamps, which many people have never seen before. In 1947, people could actually buy Hollywood star stamps. They weren't stamps issued by the United States Postal Service. They were stamps that you would buy, and you would stick them in a scrapbook, and or trade them with your friends. And ten of the stars that's pro, that are profiled in the book are on those stamps. Also, later in the book, something you wouldn't see very often either, I have in my collection, when people would go to movies back in the 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s, they would be given a a handout of the shows that were coming up at that theater the next week. And on pages 424 and 425, I have a... Handout, one of those handouts from 1941 showing the kind of movies that people actually saw during that week. And in that one week, people could see Red Skelton in his breakthrough movie, and which was Whistling in the Dark, and Gary Cooper in his Oscar-winning role, Sergeant York. And they could also see a Western starring George Montgomery and a Dr. Kildare movie and a movie starring Tom Harmon of Michigan... And a light romantic comedy with Ronald Coleman, and they would have a chance to win the jackpot at bank night. So that's all in one week at a theater in Deposit, New York. So there's memories on every page. That is
0: incredible. We're at 714 545 2071. Warm up with your questions about radio shows, movie stars, movies, anything from the entertainment industry in the earlier years, Um, we have got the radio and film historian on our team tonight. Talk to me about The Great Gildersleeve. You really sounded partial to that particular show and um, the quality of it. And you warmed up, you, you got even warmer as you listened
7: to it over the years. That's right. That's right. The article that I wrote first for Old Time Digest was called The Human Comedy. And I wrote the article almost like taking a walk around Summerfield, which was Gildersleeve's hometown after he left Wistful Vista. It's like walking around, to my mind, like walking around a a town of of the past for people who grew up in a, a smaller town. Because we'd meet people very much like the people in our hometown. There was... Mercurial Gildy who would change his moods from day to day and there was Mischievous Leroy played by Walter Tetley who was like that mischievous boy in the neighborhood and there was Marjorie whether it was paid whether the character was played by Lorene Tuttle or Louise Erickson Marilee Robb she was the typical girl who would teen girl who would have crush on movie stars or boys in the neighborhood Uh, we maybe would meet up with Judge Horace Hooker, played wonderfully by Earl Ross, the old goat, the grumpy neighbor across the street, and probably many of us in our neighborhood maybe have had a grumpy neighbor, Mr. Bullard, played by Gail Gordon. There'd be Floyd the Barber, played, of course, by Arthur Q. Bryan, and Peavy, Richard Legrand, our friendly pharmacist. The humor on that show came from the, the way the lines were spoken, not necessarily from the content of the lines. You know, if somebody said, what's Leroy's favorite line? <laughs> Are you kidding? He had so many different ways of saying it. Gilderslave could get a laugh just by saying that one word and stretching out if he, if he fell over one of Leroy's skates, just that one word. Lee-Roy! And, of course, Peavy's catchphrase. Well, now, I wouldn't say that. Sometimes the characters didn't even have to say words. When Earl Ross's cackle would meet up with Gildersleeve's dirty laugh, it was like The best duel of words since the grunt of the Frankenstein's monster met the growl of the wolfman. You know, the word nostalgia, I have often thought about that, means, if you break it up into its two-part, it, it means a return home, and the other half means pain. A yearning it's almost that almost hurts. And I try to catch that in this, this article. What small town was like, in the 40s and 50s. I grew up in a, a small town of under 1,500, where now we have teeming airports where passengers are worried about delayed fights and security issues. Back then, even small towns had railroad stations where they could get on trains or meet friends. In fact, if we think back to the very first episode of The Great Gildersleeve, that's what he's doing is getting on a train to go from Wistful Vista to Summerfield. Where now we have impersonal medical clinics where you wait days before getting to see a physician and sometimes you're you're shuttled into a room and often spend more time with a nurse or an assistant with the actual doctor who is in and out before you know it. Whereas back then we had local doctors and sometimes they were crusty doctors like Dr. Pettibone in Summerfield who are no-nonsense types who would make house calls the very day you had the problem and in some cases would diagnose Gildies malingering right off. Whereas now we have shopping malls filled with chain stores whose actual owners may live 10 states away or in another country, and we have cineplexes showing six different films featuring computer-generated special effects with many actors and actresses nobody ever heard of two years ago and who will be forgotten five years from now. Back then, as in Summerfield, we had vibrant downtowns when even small communities like my small community had their own theater and on the marquee you'd see the names of those old standbys studio stars like spencer tracy or mickey rooney or series like tarzan or buck rogers or Hopalong cassidy you'd have town barbers like floyd who not only cut your hair but also that of your older brothers and maybe even your father as well as family druggists like P V in a neighborhood grocery and bakery and hardware store. That's what I mean by it. When I listen to, to that show, there's, there's kind of an ache in our hearts, at least for people who can remember what that show brings back, that's disappeared. The family hour wasn't a time determined by network executives when people could take their places in front of the hypnotic eye of a television. It was the time, if you remember, on a number of sleeve episodes, families would actively entertain themselves with games, songs. Gildy tried several times to read aloud or review of the day's activities. Now, I, I think in many homes, very few families actually sit down to have a supper together due to their busy schedules and you wonder if there is such a thing as a family hour afterwards if people actually are able to sit down and and talk about the day's activities.
0: What did you miss the first time you listened to Gildersleeve
7: that you began to pick up as you listened to them more and more? I was listening for lots of jokes and I began to realize that the humor, the warmth of the program was not from Red Skelton type of bim, bim, bim or Bob Hope type of here's the setup line, here's the gag, here's the setup line, here's the gag. It's just the way people would speak. And the laughter would come from the situations themselves as opposed to what is actually being said and the way it was said. Harold Perry was a master of making little yelps and grunts and when something would fall on him I remember in one episode uh, hes it's the 4th of July episode and he's up and he's reaching out of the attic and he's going to be trying to put up the flag out there and the window falls on him and just those little oops and oofs that he would make would generate laughter uh, without saying anything I also thought that the program was as I began to listen to it, I noticed how elusive the program was. Not elusive, but elusive. And so I wrote another article about two years after I wrote the human comedy called Brush Up Your Gildersleeve. Most of the allusions that were used, and there were many of them used in the program, are not attributed. No one would say, by the way, this is a quotation by William Shakespeare or this is a quotation by Helen Hunt Jackson, or this is from Thomas Gray's Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard, even if the listeners didn't recognize that the quotation was by Tennyson or Henry Wadsworth Longfellow or Robert Browning, they recognized it as an allusion because references to the masters was a way of establishing authority or giving credence to what a person had to say. It was a time when quoting from the classics was the mark of a learned person and had some meaning. When Judge Hooker would come in and say to Gildersleeve, everyone that flatters thee is no friend in misery. Words are easy like the wind. Faithful friends are hard to find. That's from a little known poem It's in Bartlett's familiar quotations, but it's a poem that most people wouldn't recognize by Richard Brinfield called Address to the Nightingale. A Tale of Two Cities. Charles Dickens. A number of people were quoted. Don Quixote was quoted. And at no time does the person speaking saying, this is by so-and-so. In a society today where we've been told, at least by some of the people who do surveys, very few adults are reading for knowledge in order to better themselves, such illusions may be lost, but it makes me appreciate the program even more in that it was a, a program that relied on characterization rather than on jokes for its humor. And that's why recognizing those pertinent illusions makes me appreciate the program more as the years go by.
0: That is really interesting to me because clearly I have heard these throughout the series. I haven't listened to every single show, but I've listened to an awful lot of them, and I always appreciated these references to the masters or to well-known works or to well-known people. And just never gave it a second thought about how it enriched the
7: characters themselves. And hopefully enrich the people who were listening.
0: Who were listening. I hope that they prompted some people to go to the books and,
7: and dig out where they had come from. Right. It could be entertaining as well as edifying, which uh-huh. is a point that I also make uh, about the Edgar Bergen Hour, which we may talk about later. That also was a program that people could enjoy and also learn from.
0: You talk about Nightbeat with Frank Lovejoy as one of your favorites. Um, there, there was a, almost a satirical quality to it. Talk to me about that, and Frank Lovejoy in particular. What, what makes you appreciate Frank Lovejoy?
7: I know I'm speaking to a member of the opposite party regarding <laughs> regarding.
0: You remembered.
7: Regarding Frank Lovejoy.
0: See how cool I was in my
7: question? I didn't give hint of that, did I? It was a great human interest drama, and it was a show that, for me, still resonates as a very accurate portrayal of what a journalist on the night beat might encounter. Some of the shows lean toward the crime melodrama, Juvenile Gangster, The Partner's Tale, Molly Keller. There were a few of them. But there were also shows that were very touching. Some of them were Race Against Time episodes. And uh, the person who called in last time, we talked a little bit about that, the very first show that ends up uh, racing to the top of the Wrigley Building, to save a man from committing suicide. But there were other shows, uh, episodes like His Name Was Luke, really approaches fantasy as it unfolds the story of a Christ figure who does not appear to us or Randy, but who changes the lives of four different people for the better. And then, for me, the most touching episode was Anton's Return, which tells of a prisoner and his wife who not only die at the same time in different places, but with the same final words on their lips at the same time, and some of them are are really really well done. Russell Hughes and Warren Lewis and Larry Marcus did a great job of writing uh, the program. And because to me Frank Lovejoy is a credible voice on radio. To me, he sounds like every man, and even his appearance, even the way he looks with that kind of square jaw that he has, he looks like an everyday kind of person. And that's why I think he was great for this role, because we could identify with some of the situations that Randy Stone was was in. Um, and the sound effects are just great. The background music, uh, when he, he goes into a, a jazz club The crowd and the music is appreciative. When he goes into a burlesque theater, the crowd is raucous, as you might expect. When he goes to a prize fight, they're savage, almost uh, asking for blood. Uh, The crowd is apprehensive, the whole mood during a hostage crisis. It was a program not devoted to cutting corners, which is kind of remarkable, considering that it was sustained throughout most of its short two-year run. But it's still a favorite of many aficionados of, of old-time radio, just like Quiet Please is, and that's another reason why, when we talked earlier about why I picked certain of uh, the programs. They appeal to me, and I, they appeal to many other people who have critical ears for the great shows of, of old-time radio. When I first started out listening to old time radio in the mid-70s, because I always enjoyed Abbott and Costello, I thought they would be one of my favorite radio programs, but unlike Gildersleeve, they've gone down in my estimation over the years because I realized that the writing was pretty corny and pretty forced, and it all fell into pretty much the same type of pattern leading into their uh, word routines. So that's a show that's gone down considerably in my estimation. If I had to list my top 15 shows, uh, Abbott and Costello wouldn't be there. Some of these other programs obviously would be. And Nightbeat would be one of them.
0: It's interesting about Abbott and Costello. There was a sameness about the routines that they did. They were were predictable. The words were different. The situations were a little bit different. But... The delivery and the outcomes were almost predictable.
7: That's right, and and the beginning portion of the shows were usually pretty corny. When Costello would come in late, and Abbott would say, "Why are you late?" and and the jokes just just dealt on puns or twists on words, um, and then they would maybe lead into one of their routines. Um, and the show just doesn't show Abbott and Costello at their best. They were best in the movies, as a number of people uh, were.
0: Did, did Vaudeville not ever shake out of their their personalities on radio?
7: More burlesque than, than burlesque. Vaudeville, uh, because they came out of, of the burlesque theaters. Uh-huh. That's, that's true, and that's why when I look at at their career, I I looked at the end of their career and slapstick, pratfalls, double takes, snappy pattern, and those venerable routines were what they offered whether they performed at the Steel Pier in 1937 or in Hollywood in 1955. Their armor creaked badly near the end and it might have been all they had to wear, but for them, it was a perfect fit. And so in a way, it was good that they went on television and did a number of versions of those routines that they did before in movies in different formats, like Slowly I Turned and Who's Mm -hmm. on First and a number of those routines because they're preserved from the days of burlesque. But they weren't by any means uh, as versatile as a number of other performers were. Uh, Like, for instance, the actor James Stewart. James Stewart could do comedy. um, He could do westerns. He could do dramatic roles. And you just look at his versatility in It's a Wonderful Life. And he plays so many different parts in that episode. He's up. He's down. He's ecstatic. He's depressed. It's really a a wonderful performance by, by James Stewart. And there were other comic figures or actors who could play comic his comic roles as well.
0: And he did radio with Britt Ponsett and um, the, the six-shooter. Shooter. So he, he really crossed the media.
7: That's right. He was one of the more versatile actors uh, that we have, and certainly one who was underappreciated.
0: I need to talk about Phil Harris and Alice Faye.
7: Sure. We can talk about that program.
0: It's one of my favorites. I just love it, and I, uh, I know we had some emails and communications about this that I, Elliot Lewis is at, in my top five. If I had five people from radio, I could sit down and have an afternoon of conversation with Elliot Lewis would be in there. Tell me about the magic of that show. Uh, what, what made the personalities work? Tell me about Phil Harris and Alice Fay working and living together which is a very difficult thing for some people to do.
7: What made me write this article was I, when I was listening to these, the shows, I said to myself, you know, this is one of the funniest shows around because in almost all cases, it's difficult to listen to their show without laughing out loud. And that's why I... I thought about the lead into the show, and I, I said to myself, "How am I going to begin this article?" And I thought by suggesting what would, might be the funniest program on the radio, and somebody might select one that produced the most jokes per half hour, and of course Bob Hope and Red Skelton would be candidates for that, or one that generated the longest laughs, and Jack Benny program. Uh, would certainly be a candidate from that. Or that kept the chuckles rolling for 20 seasons or more, and of course, Fibber McGee and Molly would be a candidate for that as well as Jack Benny. And then I said, but if the criterion for the funniest show is which one could make us laugh out loud both then, 50 years ago, and now, in other words, its humor hasn't aged, a leading candidate would be the Phil Harris-Alice Faye show. And I give credit to Ray Singer, and Dick Chevrolet, they really had a talent for tailoring wisecracks to character, loading the characters with foibles so an infinite number of gags could be hung on them. For Phil, of course, because he came with the natural mantle on his shoulder of being supposedly affectionate for the bottle and unable to speak long words. They could throw malapropisms his way as well as lots of jokes. All sorts of jokes showed up about drinking milk uh, and how it would gag him. and His propensity for getting into ridiculous situations stemmed from his pride and gullibility, both of which seemed to have no bounds. And of course, (laughs) this was helped by Frankie Remley, ably played by Elliot Lewis, because all it would take would be a situation. And the situation would be repairing a, a hole in the wall, or it would be going to buy some beef, or to get a chemistry set, or to take care of Mr. Scott's poodle, or to go to Mr. Scott's home and help with the setting up of the the arrangements for an outdoor picnic, and that's the famous one where two, two of Mr. Scott's cars end up being either in the pool or torn apart. In the swimming pool. That's my favorite episode. But what makes Phil Harris unique is that he was a glib illiterate. You know, I <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> what a great way to put it. <laughs> when when we heard Leo Gorcy speak his malapropism, it was in his Brooklyn dialect. And he never got above that role. When We heard Chester Riley speaking that way, or later Archie Bunker, all those characters that would misuse language and not appear to be very bright. Phil Harris was very unusual in that he would spell blood, B-L-U-D, he'd talk about optical delusions, and stumble over his words, and yet at the same time he could be a smooth conversationalist with a line of self-confident pattern followed by a sobriquet. nobody had a greater reservoir of nicknames or cogn- or cognomens than Phil Harris had Clyde was his favorite and for men and myrtle was the favorite for women but those around him were just as likely to be called Oglethorpe or hastings or Winston's or Levi. Casper, Herman, Thelma, Luella, Mercedes. Ed claimed to be the perfect fool. Phil Harris was the perfect cool fool. (laughs) He could be smooth in his delivery, and yet the very next sentence could stumble over a simple three-syllable word. And so that's what made him so unique is that he was... Smooth with his delivery and so self-assured that whatever he was doing was right. But once he and Remley got together, we knew disaster was going to happen, and the lines were set up so well that we knew what was going to happen. If Phil would ask Remley a question like, who can we get that would be willing to jump out of a second story window? <laughs> we knew immediately who was going to show up. <laughs> yeah. Julius would show up played expertly by Walter, Walter Tetley. He was the quintessential wise guy. We sometimes think of Frank Nelson as being a great wise guy on the Jack Benny program, but. That wasn't necessarily part of his character every week. He would play different parts uh, in his roles when he'd come on the Jack Benny program. But Walter Tentley had just those great lines. I heard you guys was writing a song, and I hurried right over so I could be the first one to say, it stinks. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and so they always would, fill in, and, and Remley would always try to get Julius to test some concoction that they've got for to be the guinea pig, and more often than not, though, he he outfoxed them at the end. Uh, Walter Tetley, he had a great seal cough, too. Uh, when he'd get something caught in his throat or something, or he'd swallow one of the mixtures, he he had that great... <laughs>
0: sounded like he was caught in a smoke-filled hallway.
7: That's right, In fact, that's right. I
0: recall one of the shows did put him in a smoke-filled room, either a closet or a room. They were practicing their, fire, their firemen techniques, and poor Julius was the one they wanted to rescue. But you're right, that seal cough was just incredible. I've never heard another
7: actor do it as well. Well, even the, the, the child... Actresses Janine Roos as Little Alice and Anne Whitfield as Phyllis Chevrolet and Singer wrote some great lines for them so that you could hear them mimicking in their father uh, when they they were talking about how good the two girls were back and forth. Mm-hmm. The girls were talking uh, about how good they were for Christmas and uh, one said to the other, "It ain't been easy, Clyde." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was good now.
0: An interesting pairing of Phil Harris, who was the the glib doofus, and Alice Faye, who was sophisticated and I don't want to say worldly, but was aware of what was going on in the world, was financially secure, and the two of them would not be a pair you would make if you were putting together a recipe for a successful
7: couple. That's right. How did they make it? They stayed married. Um, for all those years, uh, right up to Phil's death, and you wouldn't expect somebody who supposedly lived such a a long and wild life to live to be 91, but he did. And they made it work on the show as well. That's right. That's right. And a number of the jokes were directed uh, toward Alice, uh, supposedly about her age, how. She supposedly was older than than Phil was, and of course her wealth. And she was she was she did make a lot of money in the late 30s. Uh, in fact, she made like 140 thousand dollars as an MGM star in 1939. She was one of the highest paid stars, but she she gave it up virtually a, uh, after the marriage. And there were some allusions made to Fallen Angel, which was one of her last films that virtually killed her career but she would she would get a a few good lines now and then on one show uh when phil says this will take brains and remley adds let's put our heads together alice (laughs) delivers the perfect squelch that ain't gonna do it
0: (laughs) even just talking about the lines that they did together Without the, the actual delivery in front of us, they made it work. It's just remarkable.
7: Yes, yeah. And, and I think we also look forward to, to the songs. The songs were uh, Alice would sing a pleasant song, and usually Phil's tended to be uh, a little bit toward the novelty, uh, like the thing and a few of, of the other novelty items. But he would sing songs like the old master painter and a few other ones that were more that were more serious and. Uh, so it, it split up the show a kind of nice, and sometimes they'd even make jokes about the lead-in. Um, there'd be a lead-in, and, and Phil would say, thanks for the lead-in, Remley, and then he would go right into his song. And so they worked very smoothly. Uh, and the program is one that's still enjoyed by, by many people today. Uh, the pattern really changed little from season to season. Later on, in the series, of course, Elliot Lewis became Elliot Lewis on the program, mm-hmm. even though he was he was basically still Frank Remley character, but he was known as Elliot Lewis in the last few years. Uh, the show pretty much fit into that same format. There'd be some little family persiflage at the beginning of the show, and then Elliot Lewis would be brought in, and then the songs, and Julius would be brought in to complicate things, and then the, the inevitable failure of Bill's plan.
0: Did the Phil Harris Alice Fay show get, and does it get, the recognition that it
7: earned? It's not considered by the, by I guess the masses, the people who maybe aren't familiar, that familiar with radio. It's not in the same ranking with the more popular shows like Fibber McGee and Molly and Jack Benny and R. Miss Brooks and shows like that. But among uh, people who are, I'm not necessarily going to say the cognoscenti or the literati, uh, among the people who know old time radio and who really are aficionados, um, it ranks up there as, as being one of the most enjoyable shows. Whereas there are are some other shows that that plainly do, like the Aldrich family and a few of the others, that that creak a little bit, uh, that show their age Mm
1: -hmm.
7: and their style of humor, which relied so much upon complications that just became wild goose chases, as in the case of the Aldrich family.
0: The Aldrich family's stories did not, they don't, they didn't, stand up in the test of time as some of the other shows did yes so I can understand what you're telling me about that okay we get to our Miss Brooks uh, I want to remind people first that we're talking with Mr. Claire Schultz, who is author of On the Screen, On the Air, On My Mind, which is published by Bear Manor Media. It's available through com, but it's also available through Mr. Schultz with a special surprise that goes along with that. But Everything we're talking about tonight and Osquillian more is in the book. So keep that in your head when we're finished. Um, would you tell them how they can get in touch with you directly?
7: Yes, my email address is WistfulVista, W-I-S-T-F-U-L-V-I-S-T-A-7-9 at Hotmail.com. And you can contact me at that email address, ask me any questions you'd like. Um, about the book, the pages, the articles that are in it, and uh, I can direct you to my blog, too, that has a photograph of the cover, a little description of the contents, as well as sample arcade cards and Dixie cup lid. And answer the question, I'll do some research on that for you and so if you have any questions on anything we're talking about at this time or anything else that's related to some of the topics we're talking about. I'll try to find an answer for you.
0: Now start making your list. I have asked Mr. Scheldt several questions and when he gets an answer, my gosh, there is an answer there. You can you can go to the bank on this one. Now, the, the next one I'd like you to talk about is Our Miss Brooks. Now, you were invited, along with several other people, to contribute to a, a Bear Manor Media book, It's That Time Again. It was coordinated and put together by Ben Omar, who was the publisher of Bear Manor Media. And you chose to do a script. Now, people were invited to do a script of a radio show as if they were a writer on that show. And you chose Our Miss Brooks.
7: That's right. We were asked to write stories, not in script format, like these radio scripts that the actors use, but to write an original story related to some topic of, of old-time radio. And I picked Our Miss Brooks because it was one of my favorites. And so... The story that I picked, I called it One Principle Too Many, One Principle Too Meany. It was an original story told as if our Miss Brooks was recounting to us a tale of how moving Mr. Boynton into the principal's office and moving Mr. Conklin into the, Mr. Boynton's classroom results in hilarious disaster. And... So that story appeared in that book, it's that time again, and was reprinted here in this edition. In addition to that, I have a separate article just on, in a class by herself, which is illustrated by, opposite the beginning of the article, is a comic book, and many people may not be aware of this. There was a one-shot comic book in 1954 entitled Our Miss Brooks, and there's a photograph of Eve Arden on the cover and in an inset photograph of Robert Rockwell, and, who played Mr. Boynton on television and later in on radio, and Eve Arden. And so there's a comic book to, to look at, and you may even find that sometimes if you go to an antique mall, And there's also a photograph in there of Gail Gordon and Eve Arden in the principal's office. Gordon, of course, played Mr. Conklin, and Eve played our Miss Brooks. And the point I begin my article on Eve with is I point out that even if we had a special teacher, we never used a possessive pronoun to refer to him or her. I don't recall ever... Thinking of my English teacher or my math teacher as our Miss Jones or our Mr. Smith. That was reserved, that pronoun was reserved for just one teacher in an imaginary high school, our Miss Brooks. And the credit for making Connie witty and warm, a person that everyone goes to relies on, belongs to Eve Arden. Everybody came to her, even her old boxing opponent, so to speak, Osgood Compton. Whenever he got into a bind, he would come to Connie Brooks to solve the problem. And when I think back to my days of being in high school, visits to the principal office used to be a source of trepidation. If ever your name came on the PA and they said, would you please report to the principal's office, even if it was a very innocuous reason, uh, maybe it just was you, you needed to fill out a report or something like that, we would go to the office with shaky knees. But when Connie Brooks went to the principal's office, we enjoyed it because we knew Two comedy greats, Eve Arden and Gail Gordon, were getting, going to get together, and we were in for a treat. Uh, it was a great fun when when they were hiding in the closet and discovered by Conklin. And that worked so well, but it wouldn't on TV. And I think a number of our listeners may not be aware of this, or they may be aware of this. If they're Internet savvy, there's a, a number of places like YouTube and internet archive that's another source where people can actually view television programs you can see the three stooges and so on if you go to internet archive and look at some of the r miss brooks episodes you never get a feeling that you're actually in a real high school when you see the scenes that play on the screen they play like play scenes like you're watching a play The only sense we get in those TV shows of the hallways of Madison High School is we'll see a scene where Eve Arden is standing by a bulletin board and Richard Crenna, as Walter Denton, comes out and they have some chit-chat, and then the scene ends. Never see any other students in the hallway. When we go into Robert Rockwell's laboratory, Mr. Boynton's laboratory, it just looks like a lab. There's a lab table. There's no seats for students. You don't see any other students in the, in the school. When you go to Conklin's office, it's just Conklin and Eve Arden. Maybe Stretch Dodgrass is in one scene, occasionally There'll be a scene where it takes place at the boarding house with Mrs. Davis. But you never get a feeling that you're really in a high school. It sounds mostly, it it sounds like a caricature where
0: simple lines give you the suggestion of a larger picture.
7: On the the TV, you don't get an idea that there's actually any other people there. Whereas... On the radio, in that one episode, for instance, where Connie has to repeatedly, when Conklin orders the students to report, I believe it is on a Saturday, she has to get up several times and talk to the students, one, trying to convince them to go to the classroom, then to go home, and then back and forth, changing changing his mind back and forth. In our mind, we can picture Connie getting up on a chair and standing in front of the, the students, and in some cases, we hear students a little student noise in the background. In our mind, we can picture that as being a high school. Uh-huh. But it doesn't work at all on TV because it looks very much like scenes in a play. Like this is act one, scene one, and then act two, scene two. There's a scene in the episode called The Big Jump in which Gail Gordon as Osgood Conklin is trying to fake an injury so he doesn't have to jump off the top of the school, as he said he would. And he, it's Eve Arden and Gail Gordon in his office, and he drops a suitcase. And the wording that Eve Arden says is, he pretends that it falls on his foot, and she says, how could it fall on your foot? It went, it, you dropped it up there. And then Gail Gordon looks over and he says, oh, yeah, I dropped it up there. Now, when you think of a direction... If you were in a room with somebody and somebody dropped a suitcase a few feet away, you would say, over there. You wouldn't say up. Up and down are stage directions. So that reinforces the fact that the scenes on television are playing out like a play, not like TV, and of course, or not like real life. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is early television in the early 50s, and we have to to make some allowances for for that, but it's just one more indication how radio and the imagination trumps T V. Would you consider our Miss Brooks as an
0: unsuccessful transition from radio to television?
7: Yes. Yes. And how long
0: did it last on television?
7: Well they and from television it went from fifty two to fifty six.
0: That's a pretty long run.
7: Yeah. The problem was that, as so often happens with producers and directors and the people who make the decisions, they monkeyed with a good thing. It ran smoothly for three seasons before the powers that be tinkered with a good thing. For the 55-56 season, Madison High School vanished and Connie was sent to teach at an elementary school. And only Gail Gordon was brought over for that last season. And it only made through one season. And you really can see why that wouldn't work because part of the fun of the show was the interplay with Walter Denton and Stet Snodgrass and the interplay with the romantic interplay with Mr. Boynton. That made up for a lot of the chemistry of the show. So.
1: Uh-huh.
7: But four years is a good run in the early days of, of television, and it's not so bad even today. <laughs>
0: excellent today in in the age of disappearing shows my goodness you just get accustomed to one and it's gone.
7: And she picked up one Emmy too so for her work on on Our Miss Brooks. Uh-huh. I so guess. in my character profile that I do of or my study of E's life which is earlier in the book, I go over her movie career and her stage career too. She did a lot of work on in Las Vegas and on the musical comedy scene, and um, she performed in a number of, of musicals and all over the, the United States and even um, overseas. Hello, Dolly, she was uh, in, and she also was in Applause. So she was a, a much underappreciated uh, actress even today. Uh, I, I think that we miss Talented females like her and Lucille Ball and Joan Davis. And that's why I give each of them their their due in the articles that um, I have done about them. Lucy gets probably the longest of any of the articles I did on any of the females because she was so versatile. And, of course, as I mentioned, she deserves the—if Milton Berle deserves the title— Mr. Television, she certainly deserves the title of Mrs. Television.
0: That's interesting. We interrupt this program to bring you a blooper.
7: I thought you were interrupting this this show. <laughs> what we're talking about right now. To, no, a, that's a, a for
0: our listeners. That's the title of one. Uh, would it be fair to call it a chapter, or segment, or Artic. article, Artic. or? Artic. Yeah, it's article. Yes. Okay, one article. That's the title of it. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't being funny. <laughs> the title is funny. We interrupt this program to bring you a blooper. You paid attention
7: to some bloopers. That's right, and there are so many to choose from. But uh, Jack Benny, of course, uh, had an arsenal of them, and I mentioned a few of them here. The famous Drew Drew Pusey, Drew uh and. I think Mary delivered a number of them over the, the years, and one of them, of course, was uh, the Grass Reek one. And
0: this is Mary Livingston. Mary
7: Livingston, okay. right, Jack's okay. wife. Uh, some of them uh, come out so funny. Uh, like Jack says, to win an Academy Award, you got to do a picture with absolutely no laughs. And Mary says, well, your darn one last near made it miss that. <laughs> and that's, 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 that's really funnier than the other one, than saying it actually right. Yes. Uh, then your last one darn near made it. So.
0: You know, that, that's really good because the line itself would have gotten a giggle. Yes. But the blooper probably got
7: a roar. That's right. That's right. And of course, Fred Allen, when he would stumble over his lines, um, he always was such a quick person with an, with an ad lib Um, he was talking to a train porter one time and he and and as you look down back near back down memory tracks Mr. Cooper and then right away he says you'd have to have been cross-eyed to look the way I was saying it so Fred Allen was quick-witted with those those responses Phil Phil Harris would come back with some good ones too I mentioned the meat episode um, where they were going to buy some meat on the hoof so to speak they and, bought a cow. And Walter Tetley had a terrible time getting it out one night when he was he was trying to say meat, and he he was he's going into the the meat neat meat business, and and Harris says, wait a minute, I ain't leaving Rexall, and I ain't going in the neat business either. So Sheldon Leonard made a blooper on the one of his shows too, but I mentioned several of them with uh, Fibber, uh, how he sometimes. Rarely made one on one of his tongue twisters, but he did make one uh, in 1948 when he made a a blooper. We had about as beat up a batch of bakers as ever balled up a bunch of batter, but the reason my batter baked better was because I beat my batter in a platter, which made a better batter, splattered the platter, Scattered the patter and then there was laughter and, and he quick said, Come in, come in, quick, to <laughs> break it up. He wanted to say splattered splattered the batter, and yet he said the word bladder, which he tried to cover up. Uh huh. So but Jim covered up his bloopers pretty well. And then I give a salute to Edgar Bergen, how he would cover up the bloopers that sometimes went on back and forth before between the dummies. Um and he would usually cast it right back to himself. Uh, he was saying one time to, to uh, when he had Charlie on his knee, why do you think sometimes, uh, why do you think the sweaters make, uh, uh, I can't read this. And then Charlie, I noticed that. Do you want to try it once more or do you want me to sit up there?
0: So he could make fun of his own,
7: foibles and his own shortcomings. Right. One time he was talking to Effie Klinker and he was saying, you might enjoy the man in the great flannel suit. And then right away he comes back with Effie saying, would you like to take that over? Flannel mouth. (laughs) This, This is good. Now, we are not treated to bloopers on television.
0: They wind up in the outtake pile. What are we missing when we don't have those human touches in a program. Would they make it on television if they let us see them?
7: I don't know. Uh, it it takes away a little bit away from the spontaneity and it was it was also an added bonus to listening to a, a program to see how the people would react. Mary and I know when Jim would stumble just for a over a word um, she would break out with one of her raucous laughters, and it would cause some more laughter. Um, Jim would say something like, uh, I, she would say, well, I can understand that, and then Jim would come back, I, I wonder how you can understand it the way I was saying it, or something like that that would break her up again. So those were the things that, those unpredictable things that made us appreciate the show a little bit more, things that couldn't be scripted. Uh, I know Red Skelton used to have his favorite line ready whenever somebody would make a mistake on one of the, the programs. He's playing the mean little kid and the stewardess tells the passengers to fasten your selfie baits or safety belt. She quick tries to cover it up. And then Red had his standard line ready whenever somebody made a, we're going to miss you around here. But actually, the people who muffed the line should have been given a bonus instead of the sack, because they were responsible for some of those memorable moments of radio comedy that we'll always remember. Harry Von Zell will ever, forever be attached to the Herbert Hoover uh, mispronunciation, and uh, I'm what? sure the the Dreer Poussin one uh, haunted Don Wilson for. Years, even though the the writers on the Benny team reaped lots of good mileage out of that. So, they did uh, for some some fun entertainment, there's there's no doubt about it.
0: Were there performers who actually were penalized in one form or another if they made fluffs?
7: Not that I'm I'm aware of.
0: So, they really did appreciate. The, the spontaneity and the fun that came with some of the, I mean, some of them were priceless.
7: And this is why the, the writers for Jimmy Durante did not have to put in alternate words for the sesquipedalian terms that they chose. They just would pick a five, six syllable word <laughs> and say, Jimmy, try to read it, and they knew he would stumble over it. And uh, that's what created so much of the fun of the program.
0: So they didn't have to write it. All they had to do was set it up, and he did the rest.
7: That's right. That's right. And he had a long speech, I remember, to Lucille Ball one night when uh, he stumbled over the words. And uh, then she, her reply was, I'm sure if you had some, had some time to think that over, you'd take it back. And Jimmy says, take it back, nothing. I had a hard time getting it out the first time. <laughs>
0: Was that in the script? Do you think, or was that something he came up with
7: off off the cuff? No, I think that line was scripted because they knew he was going to stumble over it because it was one of those uh, long ones that it would be impossible for him to to say correctly.
0: So they they could just plan ahead. They didn't even have to have to write in a boo-boo for him. Please, could we talk about Pat Novak for hire? Sure. That is one of my favorite shows. It is about as campy as you can get, and it's wonderful. Why did you include it
7: in the book? Why did I write the article about it in the first place?
0: Yeah, why did you write the article about it in the first place?
7: Uh, It deserved uh, to have a, a spotlight shown on it, just like Nightbeat that survives because of its quality and it's appreciated by fans of old-time radio, Pat Novak for Hire survives for its uniqueness. It's unique in that it's, it's in that rarefied level of camp. The show is its own parody. You can't do a parody of it. When you think back to the television program Batman, Batman was really the definition of camp. It was its own best parody. And the same for Pat Novak for Hire. Part of the fascination of the program is that, remarkably, its flaws are its strengths. It's saturated with hard-boiled characters, hopelessly entangled storylines, ludicrous similes and dialogue that is often spewed rather than spoken. And it's a show that if it wasn't so bad, it wouldn't be as good as it is. If, if people can try to, to figure that, they're that paradox to, out.
0: They're accustomed to hearing me say it's so bad, it's good.
7: It works so well because it's a different character for Jack Webb and for Raymond Burr that we're really accustomed to. The way they would spew out their dialogue back and forth, I mentioned in the article that the verbal sparring between Hellman and Novak became one of the highlights of the program. And the animosity present in their rapid-fire insults, you know. You're a small-time, water-town punk. Hellman, who's the character played by Raymond Burr. I don't like you, and I'm going to hang you by your heels. And then Novak would come back with something like, you couldn't find a moose in a bathtub. You couldn't track down a live bear in a phone booth. It was this interchange back and forth that, that made you laugh at the dialogue, but things were happening so fast that you didn't have time to spend thinking about some of the incongruities of the program. The fact that Pat Novak, who was no detective, either public or private, would have all these people suddenly coming to him to act as an intermediary to pick up a package in a boat or deliver a geranium plant, follow a woman carrying a bag, find a horse, whatever it is, and just inevitably bodies would start falling and Helmut would show up and he'd be in a jam. And Helmut would try to pin every every crime he could at Novak's door and Inevitably, instead of going to somebody that you would trust, apparently the only honest guy I know, according to Novak, was Jack O'Madigan, who was played by Tudor Owen, this ex-doctor who's now a full-time South, who he'd meet in a bar somewhere, and he'd give him some of the most vague details. He would say something like, find out about Earl Hayes and see if there's a guy named Max anywhere. Can you imagine that? Find out if there's a guy named Max anywhere. Can you imagine somebody going out in the street and saying, is there anybody named Max around here? (laughs) (laughs) He'd he'd give a direction like, knows around about tomorrow's election. Hit all the race rooms. No sober person would have undertaken any of those tasks. But he, he takes a business card and he gives it to Jocko Madigan and says, this guy's prints are on it. Check it out at headquarters. Find out if he's got a record. And then Jocko blithely starts off on his assignment, and then we're left at home to think about, picture this scene of a tipsy philosopher staggering into a station house where he is given free reign to search through police files. It just just boggles the mind that that could actually happen, but because things are happening so fast, you just keep going along with it. You just keep going with the flow. And then inevitably he's going to meet some sultry femme fatale who's going to intent upon seducing him into cooperating to get some sort of information or to do some tasks. And Yvonne Patey played the, Betty Lou Gerson played some of these roles, but Yvonne Patey had a distinctive voice and if you listen to enough enough of the episodes, you'll pick her voice out. She's the one who's the real femme fatale who tries to rap Novak around her finger. And the highlight of the show was Richard Breen, who wrote the episodes, would come up with some of the most ludicrous similes. He'd be trying to sound like Raymond Chandler, but the way these similes and metaphors came out, it sounded like They were parodies written by S.J. Perlman or James Thurber. And I, I put a sampling here in the article. It was like chasing a spider with a bowling ball. He was as sad as a tap dancer in moccasins. He was smiling like a vulture with a first option on a massacre. It was like trying to put a smoke ring in your pocket. It was so quiet you could hear a worm with whooping cough. And there were enough shadows around to keep a ghost happy for years. It wasn't going to be easy. You might as well try to French fry a kettle of bones. It was like trying to weave a rug with a spinning wheel and a bucket of sand. I might as well have been looking for a stick with one end. It was like trying to dance the minuet on skis. I began to get unhappy like a three-legged man at a ballet school. It was like offering to buy aspirin for a two-headed boy.
0: They were perfect. They were so bad, they were wonderful.
2: They sure do. We have a call, Jim from Pickford, California. Hello, Jim.
8: Hello, Walden. Hello, Mr. Schultz. And hello, Patricia. Hello. It's, uh, I agree with you about Pat Novak. It's one of those shows that even if every episode was virtually a carbon copy, the stories were practically all the same, yet it didn't matter. You you know from the moment the horn the foghorn blew and when he and he when he would talk about life on the waterfront in San Francisco, right to the end when Hellman asked only one question, I mean you know you know what's going to happen, yet it doesn't matter because each each one those that dialogue was just so unique. I mean it was just uh, an incredible show. One of my favorite sim lines was it was trying to follow a grain of rice in a Shanghai suburb. <laughs> And it was also one about trying to cure a concussion with an aspirin and all of those things. And it was such a different role, as you said, for Jack Webb. And I felt kind of sorry for the poor man when Webb went to it started, as you know, as a local program in San Francisco. And then when Jack Webb went to Hollywood and it continued briefly as a local program in San Francisco, I kind of felt sorry for the poor actor who took his place. And there's one or two surviving episodes I, I think his name was Ben Morris because how do you top Jack Webb? Right, it's like after Howard Duff left Sam Spade. Right. Now, did you feel did you Now there's only two surviving copies to my knowledge of the Johnny Madero series. Did you find the Johnny Madero series would you agree it was practically a carbon copy or was there a few differences that you found?
7: it was it, it was closer to this one than the Jeff Reagan
8: Mm -hmm. was.
7: Jeff Reagan was felt a little bit more into the, because he was working for the Eagle Eye, that fell a little bit more into the uh, detective line. But yes, uh, I would agree that with uh, Madero. And that's a program that many people have never heard at all because there are very few episodes.
8: I think there's only two to my knowledge. But it was interesting that they were both similar in one, in one respect, that uh, Novak relied on Jocko O'Manigan and Madero relied on Father Leahy, a priest, just to show how opposite, in one respect, the shows were. And, and of course Novak, I mean, Madero also had Inspector Warchak, who was played by Bill Conrad, who was almost as, uh, but almost as hard-boiled as Raymond Burr was. It, one of the episodes of Novak, I remember he and uh, Raymond Burr arguing, and, and he says, I'm gonna get you, Novak, I'm gonna get you, and he said, if I really, took, if I really believe that, I give myself up. <laughs> Something like that, and it was just uh, a great show. Two comments on the two other shows you talked about. I agree with you that Phil Harris was one of the funniest sitcoms. Uh, my favorite in that one was the one involving the 1948 election just before election day when the kids are coming home and uh, they, they get a bad mark from their teacher and and uh, and says, why and Phil's reprimanding the kids and he says, why don't you if you wouldn't get in this trouble if you'd listen to your elders And one of them I forget if it was Alice or Phyllis said but we did uh, and their teacher and we did take your follow your advice and the teacher said George Washington was the first president, not Patrillo. And also the line where Elliot, where Remley and him are, are uh, studying the election issues, and uh, Phil is talking about the importance of voting, and, and he's leading into the song Shadrach, and he says, you need to uh, be careful who you vote for. Otherwise, we might get some guy like that Nebuchadnezzar, and Remley says, what was wrong with him besides his name? And the other comment I was going to make was on Armist Brooks. Eve Arden was perfect. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I think Walden played it once. Shirley Booth did the original audition, I believe. Yes. And it just in and, and, and all respect to Shirley Booth and the other things she did, I just don't think the character was quite the same in that audition.
7: That's right. That's right. The, the people
8: made the right choice. Do you think Novak would have worked as a television series? No. You're probably uh, right. No, I, I don't think it would have uh, would
7: have worked, and and it's it's a persona of of Jack Webb that many people who are not that familiar with radio don't even know he had. They they just know him as the very uh, succinct, laconic Joe Friday.
8: And, you know, what's interesting about that is, you know, when he when he passed away and NBC television on their nightly news and their Hollywood reporter did the obit on Jack Webb, she totally missed the mark. They didn't even mention the fact that Dragnet had started out as a radio show, which was, uh, you know, when you think that there had not been a radio show, there never would have been a television series.
7: Yes, and the the radio show really set the tone for the procedural type of,
8: of accuracy that carried over into the TV show. Did he, in any of his later interviews and years, did he ever, to your knowledge, did he ever talk much about Pat Novak in any of his interviews or the character? Not that I'm aware of. I'm not either. But I agree with you. It was an excellent show. Anyway, good luck on your book and everything, and we appreciate talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Walden
0: and Patricia. Good night,
2: Jim. And 714-545-2071 is our number. Go ahead, Patricia.
0: Walden beat me to it. (laughs) We have our guest is Mr. Claire Schultz, who is author of On the Screen, On the Air, On My Mind. And everything we are talking about and a whole lot more uh, is part of the book that you have written. I'm going through a number of things here. I'm trying to talk and read at the same time and I don't do that very well. Um, You talk about in in the book you've got uh, comedians, you've got entertainers, you've got um, female entertainers, male entertainers, the Frightmeisters, which was a really great section. I loved the Frightmeisters. But you've categorized all of the entertainment people and things in uh, really clear and distinct categories. And tonight we're concentrating on the category
7: the radio shows. That's right. You know, I, I think as I, I look at the book when I was putting it together and even afterwards, I, I don't think there's any book anywhere that accomplishes what this book does in giving, it a, giving readers, even if they're not that well versed with this period, a sense of what motion pictures, TV and radio were like back then and what popular culture was like in the 40s and 50s. Uh, I think if if a person wants to get one book to give to someone, a nephew or a niece or a grandson or a granddaughter, to show them what entertainment was like in the 40s and the 50s and what growing up was like in the 40s and the 50s. And I get to that a little later when I talk about the Johnson-Smith catalog and I talk about going to movies in a small town more on a personal level. If people want a book that captures that era, I don't think there's a better book that does it than this one.
0: A couple of times people have asked about, uh, for recommendations about good books to help them get up to speed with old-time radio and old-time entertainment. I'll call it old-time entertainment because it's prior to uh, what people are accustomed to seeing today. And that was before we knew your book here, this one, on the screen, on the air, on my mind, was available. So from my perspective, and everything, of course, is opinion in the world, but I think mine is really important. So. <laughs> What I tell you, this is an excellent primer. It really is a great starting point for people who are just getting into the older forms of entertainment, and it's a wonderful refresher and some really interesting insights for folks who have been interested in old-time entertainment for a long time. I mean, it really is a one-size-fits-all, and there aren't a lot of books that can do that.
7: And because the articles are relatively short, five to seven pages for the most part, you can pick it up at, at any time. Um, you can be, before preparing a meal, you say, well, I've got 15 minutes before while this is on the stove or something like that. I think I'll read this article or that article. And you can pick it up any place. It's not like a novel that you have to read from page one to the back cover. You can read anything that catches your eye. And it's also one of my wishes that maybe some people will pick up a book and read an article about a, a show or a movie star and find a greater appreciation for that individual or that show, um, such as uh, Ozzy and Harriet. And I, I think that a number of people have just come, based upon the stereotypes that they've heard, they've come to brand... The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, as an unrealistic portrayal of family life. And I decided to take a defense up after listening to all the Ozzie and Harriet shows I had to take a rebuttal to that by saying that such criticism is guilty of the same fault often leveled at the show, namely that it ignores the way things really were on that program. I think people have come to take Ozzie and Harriet, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, and group it with Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver, the Donna Reed Show, and all these other shows, and they kind of picture them as being, this is a view of a life where women actually, the complaint was with June Cleaver on Leave it to Beaver that she was always dusting and cleaning with pearls and, and high heels and a nice dress and that type of thing, that that wasn't the way things were in real life. Well, I think if people listen to the shows, Ozzie and Harriet shows, they really will begin to picture that this actually was a fairly accurate portrayal of what happened in many homes. Ozzie himself was the, the writer of many of the episodes. He was the head writer, and he actually based a number of episodes on things that actually happened at the home. And when you listen to the episodes, like the boys planning to raise some spending money and their struggles with their homework, their involvement with girls, uh, their involvement in two different obligations for the same day, uh, getting into fights after school, participation in sports, these were common things that occurred in many families. And the show really was about the battle of the sexes. Ozzie trying to cure Harriet of over-exaggeration or being too curious, or not making up her mind, or challenging her to various contests. And that's what made the show so much fun. And yet the characters were very believable. Uh, Ozzie and Harriet were shown to be not perfect parents. They were erring sometimes, but they were caring parents who were sincerely interested in the well-being of their children. And the children, whether they were played by... David and Ricky, or by Tommy Bernard, Henry Blair, they demonstrated remarkable respect toward their parents. One thing that makes the show somewhat unique is that the comedy came largely from the situations, and the humor was almost devoid of insults, or gags meant to demean people. And if you compare that with the fair of... of many comedy shows that are on television and also other shows on radio, it made them somewhat unique. As much as we like the Jack Benny program and Fibra McGee and Molly, we have to admit that some of the humor dealt with insults. It's hard to picture the Jack Benny show and conversations between Jack and Don Wilson and Dennis Day and the whole persona of Jack being tight and vain and wearing a toupee and all these other things, without insults being tossed back and forth. But Ozzy and Harriet very rarely used insult humor. And the show left people, after they listened to it, with a warm feeling about marriage and family and a sense of well-being that left people with a, a pleasant Sensation. They had listened to pleasant humor that based main or was based mainly on uh, the situations and some of the dialogue. And there was very little character assassination and name calling um, in the show. Once in a while, David and Ricky would call each other, you know, names. You know, they would insult each other a little bit. But that was very much a, a small part of the of the dealings with the show and the show really stands up very well i think some of the shows stand up as the best representations of particular situations like for instance the the march 13th, 1949 show this is a perfect time of the year to talk about this just about every program did a show on income taxes and this is income tax week and they did a, a very good show on income taxes showing the indecision of, of Ozzie and Harriet both, hers related to clothes and, and his related to completing his income taxes. And the Halloween episode of 1948 is one of the best Halloween shows on any program when he goes to the, the McAdams house to prove uh, his, his manhood to his boys. So I I think it's a show that has a lot more to offer than people look at on the surface. So that's a show that I, I took kind of a stand on to try and convince people to, before they judge it, actually listen to the shows before they actually group it in with all the other family situation comedies of the 40s and 50s.
0: Did it take you time to warm up to that show, or did you
7: like it at the outset? It took me a while to to warm up to it, and I've always been convinced that the best way to evaluate a show is to listen to nothing for a certain period of time but that show until you finish all the episodes you have of the program. I did that recently with Escape and with the Philip Marlowe uh, show, listening to all of them. And it really gives you a good appreciation for how the show progresses and what were some of the, the weaker shows and the better shows. And it occurred to me a few years ago uh, when I was listening to the Aussie and Harriet episodes that this program has been uh, unjustly accused. family life during that period, at least as I remember it.
0: certainly more realistic than The Life of Riley, uh, a show of that caliber. I mean, it would be unusual to find a Riley show where where the poor husband was such a dope all the time.
7: Yes, yes.
0: And um, Ozzie and Harriet, as I recall, and I haven't listened to all that many shows, maybe a dozen, so I have my homework cut out for me as well, but... It seems to me that, in, in my memory, there was a shared um, a, a sharing of the "Gosh, I did this wrong," or "Gosh, I should have done this a different way." That sometimes it was Harriet, sometimes it was Ozzie, and sometimes it was the kids.
7: That's right. That's right. And sometimes uh, Ozzie would outwit himself, uh, and that's what I get back to: is that really the battle between the sexes? Uh, The battles sometimes became so complicated that only Ozzy understood the rules. One, One day he told his wife that she was pretending to want him around the house so he would leave. But then he said, but knowing that I know reverse psychology, you try reverse, reverse psychology. You say you want me inside, so I think you'll want me outside. Actually, you really want me inside, but thinking you want me outside, I stay inside, but I'm going to fool you. I'm going outside. Which was where her- her- Harriet really wanted him to go in the first place. So he outfoxed himself, and and yet it was something that we could all laugh about uh, in that he thought he was being clever, and yet he was playing right into her hands. Uh huh. So much of this was done with with gentle with gentle humor, and so many of the episodes end with the two of them uh, either uh, in bed or getting ready for bed. And, of course, that's, again, something that could be used in the imagination. This was back in the days when, like on the Dick Van Dyke show and other shows, they had to be in separate beds. And in our mind, we could picture the two of them side by side, and we had to because one of her favorite techniques was putting her cold feet at the base of his spine and chilling him in the middle of the night. And so Oz he, he, even asked on one show, how can a person with such a warm heart have such cold feet?
0: They were good lines, they were good lines, and even when they were irritated with each other, it didn't intrude on their relationship with
7: each other. That's right. And behind that 'er ne'er-do-well Ozzie Nelson was a crafty Oswald Nelson, who was his his, uh, persona. Law school graduate, and I borrowed a line from Phil Harris in describing him. Phil Harris would often say, I know what I'm doing every minute. And Ozzie Nelson really knew what he was doing. Uh, in fact, he even, he even cultivated an image for himself and Harriet as America's favorite young couple. That's how they were introduced. By having that introduction, he would subtly suggest a difference between their brand of comedy and the quote-unquote older offerings of Fred and Portland, for Jack and Mary, the Aces, George and Gracie, and the McGees.
0: How interesting.
7: Yeah, so he would he would <clears throat> title himself as America's favorite young couple.
0: He was a good advertising and marketing man too.
7: That's right. He knew what he was doing, and uh, so he's he's sometimes maligned as a picture of the very conventional father figure of the the 19. 19- 40s and 50s, but he was, he knew what he was doing.
0: How different was he off stage from the Ozzy and Harriet we
7: knew on stage? There wasn't a a lot of difference. In comparing with what we've later learned about Bing Crosby, Bing Crosby came across as being very smooth and very glib, Um, and then we later heard that indications that he was not particularly in his treatment of his children and some some rather negative things have come out in biographies about danny Kay, um being less than noble in some of his interchanges with with people in show business and a little bit on the selfish side with ozzy um he his treatment of his children uh, seemed to be pretty good david who was just checking to see when actually he died. I think it was in January. It was very recently, yes.
2: Yeah, I think around January. I think, in fact, I was trying to get his phone number through after the day before he died. So it was January.
0: We're talking with Claire Schultz, who is author of On the Screen, On the Air, On My Mind. And before we wind up, please give a call with some questions, some comments, some favorite shows that you'd like to talk about. 714-545-2071. 714-545-2071. It's
2: just a little interesting, interesting anecdote about Archie Nelson. At one time, he was the youngest boy to ever become an Eagle Scout.
0: How old was he? Isn't that interesting?
2: Yeah, he was 13 at the time.
0: 13 yes.
2: Eagle Scout. Yeah. Mama so, Mia. Yeah. So uh, at one time he held that he held that honor of being the youngest youngest boy that ever got the rank of Eagle. Wow.
7: And David uh, was 74 when he died in January. Right.
1: And
7: of course Ricky died in that uh, plane crash. Back in
2: 1985. Yeah, New Year's Eve, if I recall.
7: Yeah, that was that was unfortunate because um, he had actually had a a revival of his career. He was coming back and
0: and he was doing well. Yes, it was it was really sad. Um, an awful lot of people were able to remember him and appreciate his work, and suddenly he wasn't there. I mean, it was really sad. And you've got a section in here called The Collectibles, and that ties in with what you're doing with the book if people contact you directly with the book. So, talk about the collectibles and then tie it
7: into the book, uh, the sale of the book for me. There was a magazine called Today's Collector. Uh, in the 1990s, and I had several articles in there. One was on first editions, uh, which didn't fit in with uh, the, the theme of this book. But another one was on Tom Mix. Tom Mix had more premiums than, than anybody else. In, in these days of, of email, and we sometimes joke about post office delivery, we call it snail mail. We somewhat lost the joy of the expectation of waiting for mail to be delivered for a number of people, and I mentioned this in my article on uh, Johnson Smith uh, catalog. Johnson Smith was a company that dealt in novelties, and I enjoyed getting the catalog and ordering from the catalog, and they would have all sorts of, of practical joke type of items, uh, puzzles, padlocks, uh, rings that you could buy, a hot toothpicks, sneezing powder, dirty soap. <laughs> all, all sorts of. By dirty soap, I mean it would appear to be white, and then when you'd put it under the water, it would make your hands turn black. Uh, sparklers, comic letterheads, uh, snappy jokes. Uh, tattoos that you could put on your... All sorts of things like that. And I would enjoy getting the catalog and ordering items from the catalog. And because I live in Wisconsin and the headquarters were in Michigan, I would send a, a money order out every Monday after school and then I could count on every Saturday... Going down and picking up the mail and taking home this box of all sorts of treats. And I mentioned at the beginning of the article how nearly everyone can recall some events of growing up when the sense of excitement and expectation reached its zenith. For some people, it would be Christmas Eve or when going to a carnival. For me, the highest point of juvenile anticipation occurred when rushing home from the post office with a package of items I had ordered from Johnson Smith & Company. For a number of people, the real joy of those years was eating cereal, taking off the box top, and then sending in for a premium from Little Orphan Annie or from Tom Mix or any other, Captain Midnight, any of the other shows. And I think we've lost, because going to the mailbox now is is a, in some cases, it's considered a chore to go to the mailbox because some people feel the only thing that's there is a bill. For young people who had sent away their dime with a box top, they look forward to the delivery of mail because inside the mailbox, in exchange for their box top of Ralston Purina or of Ovaltine and a dime, they could bring home a ring or a compass or a scar, or a photo, a decoder, a badge, whistle, any number of those items. And I have a number of Tom Mix items in my collection, and I have a photograph of them to go with the article and a photograph of the manuals that went with the various premiums. And these were used in the articles that appeared in today's collectors uh, back in the 1990s, but I abridged the article a little bit uh, to make it uh, fit in the constraints of, of the other articles. So those were items that many people hung on to and kept for many years, and many of them are very reasonable now, and if you go to any of the Internet sources and go in and type Tom Mix badge or Tom Mix compass or something like that, you can still get them. Um, and a number of the items were items that glow in the dark, and they still glow in the dark. I've got... Spurs that glow in the dark. I've got spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle, like the song (laughs) says. And I've got a compass that glows in the dark and a a few other uh, items that I have. I have a shadow ring uh, that glows in the dark in my nostalgia room. But I try to capture in the book some of the joy of expectation that there was and some of the mystery that was involved in those days of being the first in your neighborhood to get one of those rings or decoders or knives or whatever it might be and taking it to school to show it to all your pals.
0: Did you have that kind of competition of sorts with the kids you went to school with?
7: Yes. And if you got a premium that you didn't particularly like, it didn't live up to your expectation, then came the barter system where you'd go and say to one of your friends, I've got this badge, what will you give me for it? And maybe a, a Captain Midnight or a Lum and Abner uh, weather badge that had a little strip of litmus paper that supposedly turned with the... that predicted the weather when it was damper or drier. You maybe would trade a Lum Abner weather predictor for... a a compass, a Tom Mix Compass, if it didn't suit your particular interest. Some of the premiums were ones that a person might not even send off for. Um, I have in my nostalgia room some things that are a little harder to find. I have not only Roy Rogers rings from the late 40s and early 50s, but I also have empty boxes of the... Quaker Oats cereal that actually have the premium offer on the outside. And those boxes are harder to find than the rings because, of course, many people, when they finished with the cereal boxes, they threw them away.
0: Well, that sounds reasonable that they would be more difficult to find. Uh, I have one question before we get to your nostalgia room, and I really want to, to spend some time with that. Did you really buy hot toothpicks? Yes. You did? I don't believe this. What did you do with them?
7: Well, you know what? By hot, I don't mean stolen. Oh, no, I I understand that. I mean, it was like red pepper or, you know. That's right. That's right. And what you were supposed to do with them was give them to a friend, uh, just like you would give them. They also had hot gum where you say, here, here, have a stick of gum. And there were all sorts of of little tricks that you would play. For instance, they had one uh, that was a, you'd slip it on your finger. It was a little ring, but in the the palm part, you'd go up to somebody and you'd be wanting to shake their hand, and you would, it would give off a little buzzer, a little shock. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, uh, some of them, the word got around pretty quick. In the case of that one, it was called the Joy Buzzer, is what it was. Word got around pretty quick, and by lunchtime, everyone in school had been warned: don't shake hands with Schultz.
0: <laughs> you don't strike me as a practical joke person. Well, you were a practical joker?
7: Yes. Yeah. And in fact, <clears throat> uh, I was I was voted the the wittiest in my high school class. And there's a photograph of me and my female counterpart who was lived two doors down the block, Susie. I see her from time to time. She was the considered the, the wittiest female. And next to my senior photograph is a quotation. Remember, I'm not always right, but I'm never wrong. And that's a one-liner that I cribbed from a Johnson Smith book of snappy jokes. And then five pages later, I appear in a photo titled The Wittiest, And I'm grinning like the Cheshire Cat as I pretend to be grabbing for the waist of Susan. And she's standing on a chair and styling my crew cut. I had a crew cut at that time with an oversized comb. And underneath that photo, this caption should really appear. Comb appears through the courtesy of Claire Schultz, who appears through the indulgence of friends and family and the manifold offerings of Johnson Smith and Company.
0: You really were a comic.
7: Well, yeah, I was a, a card, so to speak, <laughs> during those...
0: I never would have guessed that. Now, today, when we talked for a few minutes on the phone, you told me, no, 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 erase that. I want to get to the Nostalgia Room in a minute, but you also told me we could talk a little bit about Tallulah Bankhead.
7: Yes, and I also mentioned Edgar Bergen. We, It just goes on and on. I just wanted to, to mention Tallulah. This comes a little bit back to... To what I said earlier about this book is a good book to give to people who hear about some of the people who have long since passed on. Like Jimmy Durante, uh, if they see Frosty the Snowman every Christmas and they hear about Jimmy Durandy, they say, you know, my grandpa talked about Jimmy Durante. What was it about him that made him special? Uh, if you read my article, you get a sense of what Jimmy Durante was like. I read an article that was published in Nostalgia Digest in 1990 about Tallulah Banquet, and after finishing with the article, I said to myself, it wasn't written by me, it was written by another individual, it was well-researched, but when I finished with the article, I said to myself, you never get a sense of what made Tallulah distinctive. Why was she considered a, a legendary person? Why was she considered such a a character? And in my article, there are a couple articles that are brand new that had never appeared in any publication, like the one on Basil Rathbone and the one on Tallulah. I cite no less than a dozen examples of anecdotes of what made her so distinctive. She really was the the walking incarnation of, of camp. If you look up the definition of camp, it says deliberately artificial. And that's what Tallulah always came across as being. She came across as being a very affected actress. People thought that she was on all the time. They also accused Betty Davis of that sometimes, that she never was off. She always was performing. And in a way, that's the way Tallulah was. No matter where she was, she had to be the center of attraction. And she always thought that the, kind of the whole universe centered around her. She thought that all of Tennessee Williams' plays were written by him with her in mind. So she thought that Blanche dubois that was her character in Streetcar Named Desire. And Flora Goforth in The, the Melt Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore, she thought that was her character. And she had a, a knack for being quotable. After viewing The Fugitive Kind, which was the movie adaptation of Tennessee Williams' Orpheus Descending, she reportedly told Tennessee Williams, Darling, they've absolutely ruined your perfectly dreadful play. Even if some of the anecdotes told about her are apocryphal, they live on because they fit her character. Everybody says, yeah, that that sounds like Tallulah. And so I tried to capture what she was like by citing a number of of anecdotes. When she appeared on Batman as the Dragon Lady, that was the perfect show for her because, as I mentioned earlier, Batman was its own parody. And you can almost imagine her in or out of character telling Adam West as Batman, your cape is absolutely divine, but that ghastly leotard will have to go. Mauve just isn't your color, darling. A friend who had urged her to be on the program told her it would be camp. Don't tell me about camp, she snapped. I invented it, and she probably did.
0: Um, the, the article that you wrote about Tallulah encompassed her entire life, um, is, <laughs> which is really quite remarkable because it's an article lanes. But my... My impression of her, having heard her on the big show on old-time radio and having seen her in a couple of performances on, gosh, I don't even know where, but um, I I got this impression that she was really a fun person to be around, that she was self-effacing, that she didn't mind being the butt of people's jokes, and that's really not quite correct in terms of her character.
7: No, no, and she... She didn't mind some of the things that went on on the big show because she her, rival, her rivalry with Betty Davis comes up in a number of the big show episodes, and sometimes some of the exchanges between her and Ethel Merman can get a little catty as they talk back and forth. But it's all in fun uh, with the, the feeling that, That's her type of humor. You know, she was described, her introduction, if you remember, is the glamorous, the unpredictable. Now, I'm not sure she was that glamorous, but the second half to that, unpredictable, she certainly was. You never know what she was going to to say um, or do. You know, she, she kissed President Truman's hand at Madison Square Garden before predicting victory over Thomas Dewey. Now, that took a lot of audacity because just about everybody in the world thought that Thomas Dewey was going to defeat Harry Truman mm-hmm. or to drink champagne from a slipper in front of reporters in London. And she even pulled Greta Garbo's eyelashes to see if they were real. So, and she talk about stepping on, on dangerous ground. She publicly called Joe McCarthy a disgrace to the nation at a time when the powerful senator could still wreck lives with just a casual slur. So she lived life to the fullest. Life couldn't pass her by. It had to go full speed just to keep up with her.
0: Was she well-liked by her
7: contemporaries? Some. I'm sure Lillian Hellman, as I mentioned, was not a a great fan of hers because of some of the, the problems they had during the production of The Little Foxes. And she made a a few enemies down the line, but a number of people did too. Truman Capote, uh, who was, she was a a friend of Truman Capote. Truman Capote made a lot of of enemies in music for chameleons and some of the other books that that he wrote. Uh, They were kind of in that that same circle. But Tallulah, there was was only one. And that's what I, I tried to point out right from the beginning when I talk about in my introduction that there are a number of characters that we think about today that we kind of picture them together. Whenever we think of Paul Newman, we sometimes think of Robert Redford in the same scheme of things because of the movies they made together, and De Niro and Pacino, we sometimes think of them together. And I think as the years go by, we're going to picture Jay Leno and, and David Letterman together, but not so with the inimitable ones. Like Betty Hutton was completely distinctive. Tallulah was her own person. Cantankerous Gabby Hayes. Irrepressible Groucho Marx. The gleeful Red Skelton. The winsome Jimmy Durante. There was only one of each one of those. And so that's what that's what makes a number of these people stand out. And it's what I'm trying to do in the book is in a way, give a memorial to a number of these people so they're not forgotten. Uh, A number of the shows that I cover in this, Forgotten Shows to Remember, they weren't necessarily very great shows, Meet Me at Parkies, The Sad Sack, Cousin Willie, The Smiths of Hollywood, and Granby's Green Acres, but they gave some of those second bananas a chance to come to the forefront, like Park Your Carcass and Herb Vigrant, Bill Idelson. Harry Von Zell and Arthur Treacher and Gail Gordon and B. Ben they got a chance to, to come to the forefront, and many people are not even aware that those shows were even aired. Even some aficionados of old-time radio have never heard of Cousin Willie or The Smiths of Hollywood. And that was a
0: great show, The Smiths of Hollywood.
7: And so was Granby's Green Acres, uh-huh. now, even though only a few shows... Survive. It was only a summer replacement show, so even if all the shows had been saved, there probably only would have been 12 or 13 of them. But bear- but Gail Gordon and B. Benaderet and Harley Bear and Louise Erickson certainly didn't hurt for work. They went on to other employment in radio and television, so mm-hmm. it wasn't like it was their only shot uh, at the big time.
0: Hmm. Before
7: we finish up, we need to
0: talk about your nostalgia room. You talked a little bit about it the last time we were together, but today you mentioned radios that are in there as well. So would you give us a snapshot of your nostalgia room and then talk about the radios?
7: Sure. The radios are – I have 15 radios in the, the basement uh, in my nostalgia room. There are – there's a cathedral – Philco Cathedral and a Philco console, both from 1932. The other models are table models. There's some Admirals and some Crosleys and Atwater Kent. and they all they all work. Uh, I don't play them uh, because of the fact that if I do, it won't be long before the tubes burn out, and then I'd have to replace them. But they fit well in with that theme, that portion of my nostalgia room. In that portion of my nostalgia room is where I have the autographed photographs above these radios of Bob Hope, Dorothy L'Amour, and Bob Hope, and Jane Russell, and Fibra McGee and Molly, Jack Benny, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, Jerry Colonna, Red Skelton, Fred Allen, Portland Hoffa, and Mel Blanc, Bob and Ray, and of course a number of the photographs that you see in the, in the book itself, for instance the inscribed photograph of Gail Gordon that he inscribed to me, and the inscribed uh, photograph after I sent the article to Phil and Alice back in 1991. She sent me a, a, a photograph that she inscribed. And then I also have photographs along one wall of some of the the pinup stars and the glamour girls of the 1940s, such as Lana Turner and Ava Gardner and Esther Williams, Lauren Bacall. And then along the wall, and on top of the radio I have a number of my radio premiums, such as the Shadow Ring. And then as you move toward down the nostalgia room, I have the four one-sheet posters of Heavenly Days, the Fibber McGee and Molly film, and a film that I discuss in some detail. It's in the bag. The Fred Allen film. The Whistler, there's a photograph of that one sheet in the book, and also Gildersleeve's ghost. I also, as you go farther down, have photographs of various scenes from motion pictures, and then I have an insert poster and a, a lobby card, the lobby card of App and Costello, Meet the Killer Boris Karloff is in that area. I also have, hanging from the wall and from the ceiling, a number of signs from the 1940s, that's what the period the Nostalgia Room is devoted to, I have a big Coca-Cola sign, um, a, a Red Owl Cigar uh, sign, I actually have a uh, sign from a theater in Fort Atkins, Wisconsin, um, a long theater sign that was actually painted over every week by some artist. You can see underneath what was painted over the week before and it has a Gene Autry film and a mystery on one side and on the other side is another western that's completely uh, hand painted. Uh, So apparently whoever that artist was would take designs that were sent on the one sheets and just would paste them over and paint them over. And so that's a unique item. You don't see too many of those. And that's in my cowboy corner where I have Roy Rogers collectibles, cameras, Uh, I have a few items that were signed by Roy before he passed away. He would always sign Roy Rogers and Trigger, I suppose, because Trigger uh, didn't want his pen name to be known. (laughs) And then in the corner I have the Tom Mix premiums. I have Gene Autry guitar and uh, Roy Rogers guitar. And then I have a section devoted to World War II posters and World War II memorabilia, ration books and, and things such as that. And then I have a few pieces of furniture that are from that period, lamps and rocking chairs. So when you actually sit down in that chair under the, the light, you actually are back in, you actually feel like you're back in the 1940s as you look around the room and it kind of brings out the, the old timer in you. When you sit down, you automatically, the first thing you say as soon as you sit in that rocking chair, that ain't the way I hear it, Johnny. <laughs> now, do you spend time there? Do you, do you sit there and read or listen to the radio? Sometimes, uh, sometimes I do. My computer is in the an adjacent room off of that, so very often um, I will sit down there before or after and just look around in the, in the room itself, And uh, you really get a feeling when you sit down there that you're actually uh, immersed in that time period.
0: How fun. Are you still collecting?
7: Yes, yes, I'm I'm still collecting. Uh, I also have uh, a a pulp magazine collection, and I have a number of those on a revolving display uh, from that period so that the pulp magazines actually look like you might have gone into a, a store in, let's say, 1947, and there's a pulp with a, a front cover done by Norman Saunders or uh, Raphael DeSoto or one of the, the well-known pulp artists. Pulp artists have gotten a lot of respect in recent years. A number of the pulp art paintings that used to be destroyed uh, and that are coming on the market uh, are selling for, for high prices, 10 dollars $20,000. Wow because almost every one of those pulps had an original oil painting done for it. And a number of these pulp publishers would just throw them away when they were clogging up their warehouse. So many of those pulp uh, oil paintings were not preserved. But uh, that's something I have um, as well. So it's, it's a, a wonderful room to, to spend some, some time in. And it's, it's taken a, a while to to build it up, and I'm always looking for new items that that might fit in well with that A Hopalong Cassidy. I've got Hopalong Cassidy items, and so when I do online searches or when I go to shopping malls or antique malls, I very often am looking for items that fit in with that theme of the 1940s. How cool. Do you sell tickets at the door? I I wish I, I could get somebody attracted to it, but... Uh, <laughs> They're, they're, it has complaints from the neighbors, for sure. That's right. That's right. Have and I some... suppose one of the first things uh, they would say is, like one of the Twilight Zone episodes, somebody, I, I saw somebody go down into his basement and that person never came up again. <laughs> and what happened is the person went into another, another dimension. They stepped into that nostalgia <laughs> room and all of a sudden they found themselves in Wistful Vista.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, so um, somebody has to pack a lunch. When, when they come visit you, if they're going to be transported, they better have a picnic
7: with them. That's correct. That's correct. Uh- this is
0: great. Well, before we finish, would you please um, give some information about how people can get in touch with you and what happens if they order the book through you?
7: My email address, and this applies for anybody who has any comments about the book or any questions about full-time radio or film that I may be able to answer, my email address is WistfulVista, W-I-S-T-F-U-L-V-I-S-T-A-7-9, WistfulVista7-9, at Hotmail.com. I also have a blog and if when you do contact me, I can give you that uh, blog address, and uh, that has information about the book as well as some of my more recent writings on other topics of pertinence to today or or yesterday. Uh, there's some doggerel on there and some humor, so I'm still the practical joker, I guess, even at my even at my old age. If you want to order the book. From me, I can give you information about the cost. The cost would be 39.95, which is the same price as if ordering it from Amazon or Bear Manor. But if you if you do want the book from me, I will autograph the book, and you will receive an arcade card of a, a movie star from the 1930 to 1955 period and you will also receive a free Dixie cup lid with a photo of a movie TV or radio star so that you can actually touch the past um, as you're reading about the past I don't think anybody who reads the book is going to feel that the money was not well spent, particularly when we consider what gas is going for and other commodities are going for that are here today and gone tomorrow. It's a great book. And it would make a a good gift as we get closer to graduation time. As I said before, if a person has a nephew or niece or grandson or granddaughter that shows any interest in the days gone by, maybe old-time radio, and we shouldn't be so narrow-minded to think that every young person is addicted to video games um, or to mindless entertainment. There may be a number of those young people who are just learning about radio and are finding it much to their liking, I think this book would act as an inducement to those people to listen to not only the shows that are their favorites, but to try some of the other ones. What about this Pat Novak? What about this Nightbeat? Or I never knew that Lon Cheney Jr had a father who was making motion pictures or I never knew that the correct pronunciation for B-E-L-A-L-U-G-O-S-I is Bela Lugosi so it can be edifying as well as entertaining
0: I know I mentioned early on perhaps people are joining us late, uh, as happens. People come and go in this show. They, they show up in the early part and give us a call when they wake up in the morning. But um, one of the things that I mentioned was that occasionally someone will ask, what is a good book or what are good books to get me up to speed, to give me some good insights in old-time radio, and this is one of them. On the screen, on the air, on my mind, it's published by Bear Manor Media. Bear Manor is um, one of, probably the uh, specialty publisher um, of old-time radio books. There are many more that they publish, but old-time radio is a, a very dear part of their entire operation there. And that's uh, the organization that published on the screen, on the air, on my mind, by Mr. Claire Schultz, who has been our guest tonight. And I thank you so much for spending this amount of time. We've we've had you for (laughs) a very long time tonight. Normally we're finished uh, sooner than this, but you've been very gracious with your time, and I really appreciate
7: it. Well, thank you for having me on, and maybe we'll talk again at some other time. I hope so. I enjoy talking about the days of radio and tv the golden era for radio tv and motion pictures and if there's any interest expressed by some of your listeners after our conversation tonight um, you can direct them to that email address and i'll be happy to answer any questions they have
0: that is super that really is very generous of you to do that um, so many times I have come to you and said look at this now i've got th- I've got this strange situation that I can't sort out and gosh you sort it out for me so great source and great resource and I really appreciate it thank you so much for spending the time with us tonight all right stay on the line until um, Walden gets to switch us over
2: okay all right well today is Fibon McGee and Molly's birthday 76 years ago and also the day that millions join born so, we're going to hear for a few minutes everybody, I pulled out the time when Les Tremaine sat down with Jim Jordan, and talked about the really early beginnings, how Jim and Million met, what their life was like, so we're going to hear that for a little while, while Patricia and I come back with you in a little bit. So, here we go, back to about 1973.
9: Here's Fibber. I think that the formative years of anybody in this business or any business, when you're unknown, are the, are the more important years, and those are the years I'd like to dwell on. to, Jim. Wonderful. Because those are the things, the things that happened then are the things that brought us to where we are now. True. Mm-hmm. And they're so important. Where were you born? I was born on a farm five miles west of... Peoria, Illinois, and uh, I always used to say that I was born at 7 o'clock on the evening of uh, November the 16th, 1896 on the top of Kickapoo Hill of poor but dishonest parents. <laughs> <laughs> I love the name Kickapoo. That That's Indian. true. Indian. That's right. That's the home of the Kickapoos. Poor but dishonest parents. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Kickapoo Creek was a famous creek that leads into the Illinois River, where I played a lot when I was a kid. It was a couple of miles from our farm. Beautiful country. It is beautiful. And uh, on our farm, we had artifacts. There was a ridge, particularly a ridge on the farm, that had been evidently an Indian encampment. Mm-hmm. And every time the field was plowed, the kids ran along behind the horses and the single uh, plow and pick up the arrowheads oh and the... Uh, and were that thick? Oh, well, you'd find them mm-hmm. every, every time you do it. Mm-hmm. And we found a couple of tomahawk heads and things like that. And I went to a country school until the 7th grade. I went to Norwood School, District Number 65, mm-hmm. until the 7th grade. And from the 7th grade, we moved to the city of Peoria. Mm -hmm. and we moved right practically on the Bradley campus. Mm -hmm. And I went to St. Mark's Parochial School Mm -hmm. and then I went to Spalding Mm -hmm. Institute, a high school for boys. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to walk to school every morning with a kid named Spike Sheen. Mm -hmm. Bishop Sheen? Right. No kidding. Mm-hmm. You, you floored me there for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we played basketball together, and we've been friends ever since. Oh, time. he's quite a man. Yeah, yeah, certainly he is. I'm a, a beautiful man, I'm an sure an Done to me. Marion was born, and raised about three miles from our farm. Did you know her? her as a boy? Well, I knew her older brother went with my older sister. My so the families were, knew each other, yes. and, and, the, and the Driscoll's, her, her maiden name was Driscoll, and they were, we were farmers and they were miners, mm-hmm. coal miners. And in the too. schools and all this time, there was always the big deal between the miners and the farmers. Oh. They're always fighting. Uh-huh. The, kids. the rivalry. Oh, yeah. With the ball team you. Uh-huh. No, that's, sure. that's, that's I just want to uh, interject a, a little thing here, Jim, uh, for the people who are going to research this years and years from now. Marion, whom you mentioned a moment ago, was Molly in February. Yes, Molly. Yeah, and uh, the families knew each other. In fact, uh, I, I remember going a couple of times to her school on a, on a hay rack in the mm-hmm. evening with a whole yeah. crowd of people to, to a school entertainment. And I saw her perform. She sang and danced, and I can remember that. Now we were about probably 12 yeah. or 14 at that time. Mm-hmm. Gee, your life, your early life was real Americana, the thing that is almost gone now, if not yes. gone. The hay and the creek and all that. Across the street from this Catholic boy's school that I went to was Catholic girl's school. Mm-hmm. And she was then going there, and I saw her a couple times then. Mm-hmm. And later we met at choir practice, in the, we had I had a trio of fellows that sang, and we were all interested in voice, we were all studying voice, this was actually out of school. And, uh, we met at choir practice we were ultimately married. Prior to the time we were married, I went in Vaudeville and she taught piano. We were married on August 13th, 1918 because I had three brothers in the service and I'd come in off the road in April and got a job carrying mail. And the man on the draft board who lived right on the corner, a very fine, elderly gentleman, assured me that I would not be called. business, Mm -hmm. and we had a little concert company, Mary and I, we did very well, had that a couple of years, we'd be out about 39, 40 weeks, and we worked every day, and we made good money, we made $25,000 with that thing, in I was 24 years old now. Yeah. <laughs> and we were yeah. meeting the committees with a chill tobacco in one corner. Of my... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You're running your own business, no, no, Making your own bookings and no, all that. Sure. we had our own advancements. Oh, Catherine, was a child that was, a, was born in 1920. Mm-hmm. And we, we had her on the road with us, too. Mm-hmm. A musician with us whose wife took care of her while we were at the theater. And we played high schools. And well, now, you had this was a... A great experience, this this funny this concert company. We move every day, almost every day, and we move never over. I'm never over 50, 60 miles. Well, thank goodness. Yeah. Did you have a lot of props? And Nothing except this, which we had all that's the ourselves. Concert company, and you did it by automobile, I suppose. No, trains. By train, yeah. Mm-hmm. By the time there was still a lot of mud on the roads then. Yeah, that's right. Sure. We didn't have the roads. Mm-hmm. The automobile was coming into use for this kind of business just gradually at mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. And We talked a lot about it, but we, but there we couldn't do it all over the place. Yeah. Just the, way the airlines aren't. That's right. You could train anywhere. We played at the matinee and a night concert every day. And we could do any length of time from 20 minutes in a picture theater to two hours in an evening concert. We had four people. It was really something. And uh, we, we didn't play the big cities, but we, we played some of them. Well, so much the better, I think. You know. and we, we, we just played every day. We paid a dollar and a half a day. For a room for two of us and capping was long too. Oh, Sometimes we'd go to two bucks but we'd look around before we'd spend it. We just had a rule. That's it. Dollar and a half for a room. Mm-hmm. And we'd do an afternoon it in high school. This is where we really made our, our way. let We paid the way. We mm-hmm. didn't draw well at the concerts too well mm-hmm. often. But the, the afternoon thing, the noon thing we did in high schools and, and almost a high school every day, high school or grade school, and the kids would just come and we like yeah, up. Oh boy, would they? Yeah. And the school was tickled because, you know, they, it was something that they wanted for the kids. A way they, to bring culture to them. Well, that's right. In a small town. That's right. And I uh, did a lecture about these, about the instruments we used. we were trying to learn about them, but I was four lessons ahead of the kids. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so that was a great experience. But we, when we knew we were going to have a baby at the end of 1923, we thought we shouldn't. Well, we couldn't go because man couldn't, you know, it was sure. too much. Sure. So we went to Chicago, and I worked in the picture houses then for a year. X, right? Well, I worked in the music presentations. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, uh huh. And as the singer. They used to have uh, dramatic or, or um, theatrical presentations before yeah. or after the picture. Yeah, we always did bits from so all the big musicals and all. Yes, with. I remember them well. I, I did that for a couple of years, star to death. Did make any money? This was late 20s now? Well, this is getting to be not the late 20s. This would be 24, 25. Mm-hmm. And along about 1925, uh, uh, the baby now is a couple of years old, Jimmy. Mm-hmm so we started doing club dates gradually getting back into it as she could you know really? may i ask club dates women's clubs or kiwanis rotary no just casuals of... as they know them today we call them club dates club did you have uh, the fancy sayings along patter along with your no, songs no mm-hmm. not a bit of it strictly a legitimate musical act absolutely mm-hmm. and then we went back into vaudeville and uh, the children were down in Peoria. we did that about a year and in the meantime we had gone down to the radio station the little station called wivo oh, in on the north side of chicago yes i remember well. it well yeah. the second station i ever worked at well it's the first one i ever worked at and uh we seemed to we, we liked it and we seemed to do very well mm-hmm. in the was that when it was out on north Park north Broadway, North Broadway, yes, yeah. way out north. Nelson Bond and Mortgage Company. So W I B O. Yeah. And what did you do there? Same thing. Same. Mm-hmm. Just same. We never talked. Uh, we, we did that. We fooled around there about a year, and we were really in bad financial straits at the end of that time because we didn't make any money. Yeah. Nobody made any money. Yeah. Really no. We money. didn't have any money then. Yeah. By then our money was gone. Boy. What we had just saved and everything. Yeah. And uh, we we got the corral time. In uh, which was a small time, about, about eight weeks or something, that summer. What I'm speaking about now would be the summer of 1927. We met a team in Danville, Illinois, where we were doing the barber act. This was in had Halloween time. These people were Tim and Irene. Oh, for goodness sake. And they had a big act, an office act. We mm-hmm. were playing the theater together, and that's the first time we met them. And we became friendly and good friends, and Tim said, if you'll come to New York, I'll get you the low time, which I'm sure you would have done. So we made a date to meet him in New York with such in time. And we had a couple other dates to do up northern the Illinois. We went back into Chicago, getting ready to go to New York. and We went to a restaurant called Bentano's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the McClure building, way away from the theatrical district yeah. there right on the south edge of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And we ran into a piano player from Peoria who was in radio named Howard Newmiller. Oh, for goodness sake. Uh-huh. <laughs> all these names? <laughs> and Howard said, I'm working over here at WENR. I believe if you'd go there and get a job. Was it the Blue then? The Blue Network, WENR, was just an independent station? independent station. Right. And uh, so we went over and we got the job, and we got three days a week there. And we went back to Western Broadway and talked to the agent, and how uh, they'd book us? What could we? Could they keep us going around in that area in the another four days? Yeah, yeah. That's what one day would be enough, you know. Sure. So that's what we did. We got the job, and W.A.R. paid us sixty bucks a week. A lot of money in those days. Yeah, we were worth about forty dollars a day in the Waterville theater, so we made our living. And uh, we weren't there very long doing that until things changed quite. Dramatically, we were making seven, $800 a week. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, People must remember that the value of money between then and 1973 has changed right. a great deal. That was quite a bit of money in those days. So we, WNR was sold to the network, sold to NBC mm-hmm. in 19... 19- 30 or 31, 1930, I believe. Well, we didn't want to go to the network because we had talked to the network, and they said, yeah, they'd take us over there, we could go, but they wouldn't allow us to announce a theater that we were going to play that night like WNR did, because that's how we made our money. Sure. So we didn't go. We went over to WMAQ. That was an independent station. It's not a daily news station. A CBS affiliate. CBS. CBS. They're on CBS. Oh, darn. And these two fellows were over there, but we we seemed to run into these two guys
1: everywhere we went.
9: Prior to this, a uh, year or so before this, bit we go than that, about 1926, I guess. Huh? Um, they, they were going to hire a team at WGN. This is when we were knocking around Chicago before we went back and Baltimore them. this happened, and so we all went tried right out for the job, and these two fellows tried to like Carl and and. And Charlie Carell from Peoria too. (laughs) He was a lot, he was older than me and we later became very good friends. Mm. But his, I was a friend then and his younger brother, Mm. Bryant, Red Mm. because he did magic and he was on the amateur shows. It's fantastic how Peoria, gets into the act so they eventually didn't hire us they hired men the man that i remember the most was quinn Ryan and and bill hay yeah and bill hay was he was kind of leaning toward us a little bit on this job he, he was the only one, I guess. Was he in production there? Well, yeah, was he, and, uh, oh, he was the announcer. But everybody did guy. everything. Well, sure. Yeah. So he had a say in who they hired. Sure. This is the first time they're going to hire anybody and pay any money. But we didn't get the job. Carl and Gosselin got it. Sam and Henry. Well, they, they weren't Sam and Henry. They weren't they they, even that then. No. They were there about a month, and all of a sudden they got into this Sam and Henry.
1: I do like you.
9: 1931 now when we went over to MAQ because we didn't want to lose our income that we were making from announcing the dates over WC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we went to WMAQ. Over on the river. Over on the river. And we went on about uh, six o'clock at night, I think it was, every night. And who, who followed us? Amos and, Amos and I. <laughs> Boy, that was a real prime time duo. They were on the CBS radio station, I don't know whether they went out over CBS in Chicago or not, but they went out all over the country over NBC, from a, NBC. From a CBS station. Right. Gee, it was all mixed up. And we were on the CBS uh, yeah. network then. I remember this sort of thing going on. And we were, but our, our uh, we didn't do as well going to the theaters then as we, we did it all for a while. Hmm. We had to build it up again over yeah. the way we had it from WNR. But anyway. We were there six months, and during that time, the man who owned the space died. His name was Strong, I believe. NBC bought that. He was 32 sometime before we moved over to NBC. They they paid us uh, $200 a week. And the reason they did that, because Marion no was a union piano player, you see. So they had to pay her $140 a week, because she played the piano all, all the time. And she got 140, and I got the 60. <laughs> Those doggone musicians! And we... long before we went there, and we went to WMAQ, Amos and Andy had started a precedent that they wrote their own material. So at WMAQ, they had the feeling that if we didn't write our own material, you know, it's been uh, really. it, uh, yeah. nothing to perform at all. We had to do yeah. was prepare. I know. Everybody feels that way about performing. Yeah, that's right. I think nothing to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Um, we had met a fellow at W. Lally, WENR. He was a cartoonist. He hadn't written anything. I don't believe much at that time. Don Quinn, anyway. So he was. Hmm. And uh, so we said when we went over to M. We'd, we'd hire him. And, and we said we'll have to keep it quiet. You'll we'll right. have, we'll have to go Yeah. And that was all I right was him. He didn't care, he wanted the experience. Sure. So he wrote for us at WMAQ, and then we went over to NBC and did the same thing. Yeah. And uh, we sat there for four years on that $200 a week deal, and we couldn't make another dime any other way. I you mean they restricted you to sure. so that well, you couldn't do the yeah, outside? Right. Not realizing that we were building something on the network yeah. because that didn't come back to us too well. They, they didn't pay much attention to us. Mm-hmm. We were just something that they bought this station and we went along with it you know that's that's what it was what did you call your act then well with Marion and jim jordan and, jim. and uh the the act of we started the don started to write and we went to the MAQs called smack out mm-hmm, that i remember and then they put that on the N B C network smack out mm-hmm. and we did it, that's what we did it for four years it's a cute show and don is the Mac out of everything yeah that's right that's <laughs> right and don made his living working for olsen and johnson he wrote material for olsen and johnson but he kept on with us all this time and finally we told NBC. We were auditioning all the time. Everybody was auditioning, but nobody was selling anything. You know, yeah. Don McNeil and yeah. Dick and Sade and Dick and Sade and Man and Jim Jordan. Always, we always did the same ob- auditions for everybody. We're doing them every week for somebody. The Johnson Company, we found out later that Henrietta Johnson, who became Henrietta Lewis, was married to Jack tech lewis and he found the agency Needham, lewis and Broby, who represented the Johnson company and she started listening to smack out <clears throat> and she got taken in by this thing oh beautiful and uh and in the meantime sid strokes was manager of the station that we were working on and he got interested in it and he told us later that he used to stop the car he stopped his car on the way to work Wonderful. and just set the call up and stop and listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> and Miss Henrietta is the same thing, so she told Jack, and he, Jack Lewis, decided that uh, he would like to try to get us. And he didn't want to tell NBC that he wanted us mm. because they'd, uh, he could do it better if they didn't know it. You know? Yeah, sure. So they started phoning nbc wanting to hear shows they were looking for a new show Mm -hmm. and they thought that somewhere along the line nbc would present us Mm -hmm. you see and then they would get us yeah they'd pick us up that way rather than going out and asking for us which which was smart Mm -hmm. they heard 20 shows never they never presented us because this was a half-hour show, a nighttime show, and we couldn't do a half-hour nighttime show because we were doing a daytime show. But NBC didn't didn't realize that we were doing half-hour nighttime shows, a half a dozen of them a week, all this time, all over the NBC network, too. We worked on Saturday Night Jamboree Uh and Kalton Myers Kindergarten. Uh
8: (laughs) that's right. So
9: we were doing these things, but they didn't didn't put that together somehow, so they never presented us. So we got the show together and went over to the McClurg building where Gantano's restaurant was. And right over back by WNR and we did the audition and they made a deal with us. Then we went back and told NBC. This was the beginning of the game
2: now. And there we go. That is part one. of uh, a great time when West Jermaine sat down with Jim Jordan. And reminisced about his career. And, and, and ironically, today it's also Les Tremaine's birthday. He would have been 98 today.
0: It's his birthday, too?
2: Yeah, isn't that something? So. My goodness. February, Mickey and Molly, Million, Jordan, and Les Tremaine, all April 16th, also the anniversary, uh, out here on uh, radio station KFI. So, and Frankie. And. Yes. Charlie
0: Chaplin's birthday. Hooray! How about that? Go to Google everybody. Let me see if it's still there. It was a midnight deal. Oh yesterday, Google my tongue is cold. I've been eating jello that I put in the freezer that I should have gotten out sooner. Did you ever eat crunchy jello? Um
2: you can't get actually any- one of my favorite jello desserts
0: Yeah.
2: Are frozen jello bars that do not melt your hands.
0: Frozen jello
2: bars uh-huh. not melt in your hand. Sort of like the
0: rubber. All right.
2: And that's a great dessert. So that's sort of crunchy. Well... Patricia caught me while I'm eating a jelly belly, so... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's what it is? <laughs> Well, this is a bowl of Jello that wiggles just like Jello is supposed to wiggle, but it's got ice in it, so <laughs> it crunches. It's been in the freezer too long.
2: What's in it? Ice? Just plain Jello.
0: Just plain Jello. And
2: so it has ice in it.
0: Well, it, yeah, because it was in the freezer too long. So
2: you must have re- a really cold fridge.
0: I have a very cold fridge. Ah. Some of it turned to ice, so that's how come I've got crunchy Jello. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has ever had crunchy jello before.
2: I don't think so. That should be the topic.
0: Crunchy Actually, Jell-O? that, died,
2: that died t- tied into our topic for the evening.
0: Yes, it does. What is our topic?
2: Uh, we want to talk about desserts. Yes. Desserts. And we have a trivia question based upon desserts, everybody. Yes, we do. Can you tell us?
0: Well,. Let me tell you, uh, I have the official sentence here. Okay. The theme is desserts. That's what Walden said.
2: Let me, let me roll the drum.
0: Okay. See, I was going to ask you if you had your sound effects. I probably do. Let's see if it's been moved. Ah, ah,
4: where's my monkey? <laughs> your monkey <laughs>
0: Holden has some sound effects, and I should have asked him sooner. It? When people call in 714-545-2071 and answer a trivia question, not only should you get some radio shows, you should get a drum roll or a, or a yay. or a, You have an applause sound, right? Yeah. Can you find it?
2: No. Fish. Fish.
0: It, your mom was in there. At- uh-huh. How do you know? Yeah, well, you know, we're going to have to have a proviso in the patent that we're, we're filing for her. <laughs> anyway, the theme is desserts. Hooray! Yeah, that's Hooray! right. I mean, we'll just get to the food right off the bat. That did not
2: work. Let's see here. No?
0: No, I mean, the fireworks was fine. Here we go. Oh, boy, that'll blow my ears out. No. No,
2: no, no. No. <laughs> no. Nope. Yeah, that fits, Patricia. Work.
0: That'll help. Wrong answer.
2: She got three more buttons to go. Was we'll she? Two. The One. There we go. That the at the handy doopy, sandy doopy, goofy sound effect machine.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, boy, now it's melting all over the place here. I better just put it in the kitchen, huh? <laughs> well, you know, why don't I just
2: talk and you can clean up clean up there and. Oh, that's okay. You can eat in the kitchen, too.
0: Well, while you're talking, I'm just going to eat spoons full of my jello.
2: Oh, royal jello pudding. No, no, no. It's jello. She's eating J E L L O.
0: Well, it actually is royal gelatin. You're right.
2: Oh, it is royal gelatin. Mm-hmm. We have another debate. Do you buy jello or do
0: you buy royal jello? What is America's favorite jello? Well, I think it's jello, but. At five for a dollar, how could I pass up Royal? That's right. I mean, we just won't let Jack Benny and and Henry Aldrich know. Okay, so the question is, what is your favorite dessert, or what is your favorite dessert story? Walden always has stories. I know he's got one of them. But we want to know what your favorite dessert story is or your favorite dessert. Can you narrow it down? Now, what he was alluding to was our... This is... what would we call it? Last week we it's had... It's a survey. It's our top five survey of the week. Well, a survey, yeah, but if somebody gets it right, we have to give them a prize. Well, we'll it's, a, it's like, you know,
2: it's like that game show in the 70s, what would that called? Family Feud, when they... they Richard Dalton asked, all right, name the, can you name the uh, items in the top ten survey questions is...
0: Do you know that show is still on? Is it really? It is! I saw it listed the other day. Okay, well, here's the deal. Yes. I looked up and found the top five desserts in America. I know what they are. Walden knows what they are. Yes. You also have a list of ten favorite desserts that we know is screwy, and I'll read that to you later. We figured out that was screwy even before we knew it was screwy. (laughs) So, So you are allowed five guesses. If four of those five guesses are on the best top, all the way at the top of the list list, you get some radio shows. Right. Walden did it. Of course, Walden can do everything, but anyway, let's start this absolutely correct. Hi, Walden. Patricia! What kind of a week did you have?
2: I had an awesome week. As I'm eating more jelly bellies.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, you too. Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm asking you a question so I can eat the rest mm-hmm. of the yellow before mm-hmm. it turns to soup. Mm-hmm. Well, go ahead. You,
2: you eat and I eat, and we ha- we'll have that air.
0: Maybe somebody could just give us a call and bail us both out. Seven one four five four five two zero seven one. 714-545-2071.
2: I bet my jelly belly will be finished before you jello, though. So I'll be I, able I to talk. I bet that,
0: too, because I have to eat this a spoonful at a time. And because it's had some ice in it, mm-hmm. I just put it back in the refrigerator. It's just going to be watery by the time I take it out.
1: Well,
2: go ahead and finish it up there. You know, a spoonful of jello helps help the medicine go down.
0: <laughs> Something like that. Yeah.
2: But anyway,
0: we have... The five top desserts in the United States of America. If you can name four of the five, but you only get five... Give me 20 guesses and say, where the five in there.
2: That's right. Hello there, you're on the air. Thank you for calling in. The dessert kids are happy that you called. Well, good evening.
0: Hello, Fred. Who is this? Let me think. I came across a squirrel story today. A squirrel father. And I thought of you. How are you?
10: Good. Good. I kept that back. Sharing my bed with a 65-pound dog because we got the he sees his first windstorm out there. And he's petrified.
0: Uh-oh. How bad is the wind? I know there are whole big parts of the country that are getting battered with wind.
10: Yeah, it's it looks pretty good. Like I said, he usually takes a thunderstorm to scare him, but he's petrified of the wind. So. It's
0: okay. Enough. Well, the wind makes a really strange sound to doggies' ears.
10: Yeah, he ain't liking it.
0: But how big is the wind?
10: No, well, so. So he just, he knows the
0: only time he can get with me is when he's scared.
10: So what kind of dog is it? He's a, he's a mutt. He looks, he's got a lot of, uh, a lot of chow in him. Uh Uh-huh. He's got some shepherd, some collie. He's about
2: 60 pounds, you know, mid-size. He's a little bit of the United Nation. Yeah. And what color is he? A pound dog. What what color is he? Oh, I'm colorblind. Oh, that's, that's right. Well, he can be anything then. Yeah, he's... (laughs) You <laughs> know, he probably he probably he probably poking out red with blue stripes. <laughs>
10: he's almost like a oh, like a shepherd, uh-huh. dark shepherd color. Oh yeah. But he's definitely unique. He's oh, definitely unique. He's definitely your personality.
0: personality. He's your dog, so that automatically. <laughs> <laughs> now, I I need to if you could put the dog on the phone, please. We need to tell him about the squirrel and. <laughs> It's how to avoid
10: eBay? He would not believe you. you... <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows. I'm God to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that oh, that poor squirrel. i
0: just you, heartbroken.
2: How did you <laughs> find How did you find
0: your dog? Oh, went to the pound,
10: and uh, it's an interesting story. I uh, he does this thing where he uh, instead of uh, Kissing, he likes to push his face into your face.
1: <laughs> oh.
10: He pushes his face like he'll push his face into your nose. That's, that's his thing.
2: Uh-huh.
10: And uh, he, he did that. He, I took him into this other room there while I was trying to get used to him and see if I liked him. And he did that a couple times. And so I did like him, but he pulled a little bit more than I liked. But I had him out in the leash. So I said, well, I got to think about this." So I, I put him back in the cage. And I was going to go back and tell the lady at the desk, I was thinking about it. And as soon as I put him back in the cage, a mother and a daughter came in. And the first dog they saw was, was Zeb, and they were like, oh, look at him, he's beautiful. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to lose him. So I went right to the counter and said I wanted him. Uh, uh.
2: So what's his name? And he's been with me ever since. So it was like
10: nine, ten years ago, and he still runs around like a little puppy.
0: And he's managed to escape eBay.
10: <laughs> I would never sell <saw> my dog.
1: <laughs> hey. I don't
0: know. I mean, you sold a very emotional attachment for. Like the squirrel is alive or something. <laughs> 30, pa- 30 pieces of silver.
10: I would never sell my dog on eBay. What's your dog's name? I'd sell my brother, for example. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Zeb. That's the name he came with. Zeb. Okay. He was full grown when I got him. Uh-huh. Boy, so uh, he's my baby. All right. Baby. I'll send you guys some pictures. There you go. Do that. There you go. Oh, well, Um, but yeah, he's got this child thing where he, uh, I got a picture of it too, where he lays down and crosses his front paws. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of cute.
1: Uh-huh. It
10: looks like he's uh, he's a great dog. Smart dog. Real smart.
0: Of course he's a smart dog. He has stayed off ebay.
10: <laughs> well, he figured out how to open I got these handicapped the time I got these handicapped door handles. Uh-huh. So I could get in and out of the house a lot easier than the, the regular regular door handles, you know. Huh? i had him about a couple of weeks I the way to bed. And a friend of mine came upstairs. And he looked out my bedroom window and he said, I think your dog's way down the road. <laughs> I'm like, no, my dog's under the bed. And he looked under the bed and he goes, he's not under there. We go downstairs, sure enough, the back door's wide open. He figured out how to open the door. So now we got to keep the door locked.
0: He heard the word eBay. Oh,
10: uh, no, no, no. Yeah. He knows better. I would never, I would. nobody would ever touch this dog. He seriously dies. Which hopefully is a long time. But <laughs> well,
0: I hope so too. That poor dog.
2: Yeah.
10: But anyway, I'll try to share the bed with this thing. Yes. Things are good.
0: Good. Yeah. And that, things are good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I found your life with Luigi. Oh, good. So that's ready to go out. Um,. And I'm giving you an opportunity to add a second item to the envelope.
10: Oh, well, okay.
0: Who was Popeye's girlfriend?
10: Oh, oh, well.
0: Oh, oh. oh, hey. oh. You know, I'm <laughs> going to have to harden up my questions here.
10: That was way too easy.
0: Really? Oh, really?
10: Yes, it was.
0: Okay, who was Popeye's arch rival? Oh,
2: uh, Brutus. Wrong. Brutus. No. Yes. No.
0: Yes, it was. You know who it was, Walden? I thought it was
2: Brutus. Yeah. It was Brutus. And it wasn't Brutus. Who else did he fight every week? I don't know. We Well, it can't be Wimpy. No, it's not Wimpy. It can't be olive oil.
1: No.
0: Olive oil.
2: How's <laughs> his love? Um... I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. <laughs> I'm Popeye the Sailor Man.
0: Somebody out there knows it. What would you like me to add to your envelope because you knew olive oil? Oh, boy.
10: Uh, I think you said we did about everything.
0: You did, but there's... um. No, I don't think so. Uh, pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> Um,
10: I have no idea. Just surprise me. Look up what you sent me and surprise me.
0: Surprise me. <laughs> okay, I will send a surprise. <laughs> Are you in the mood for, um, comedy or westerns or detectives?
10: Well, if there's any westerns you haven't sent me, I'll take them. I don't believe there is, though.
0: Well, I haven't kept a good list, either. I've got um, the customer. Cisco Kid, did I send you the Cisco Kid?
10: I don't maybe
0: not. Cisco Kid it is.
7: That'll work.
0: Okay. Cisco Kid for Fred. Okay, Cisco. Oh, okay. Uh, before I go, you're
2: talking about desserts, right? Yes, yes. You, can you figure out our top five survey. No, no, no. It you,
10: will definitely not be on your top five. Okay.
2: What yeah. Uh, oh, strawberry shortcake's probably on there.
0: Strawberry shortcake isn't on there. How interesting. Oh you oh.
2: know, nope, nope, not then make the list.
0: How interesting. What you what? know what? I've, that's a good guess, Fred.
2: You're, you're right.
0: If I, I would have had that one as number five, but that's not what made number five. Oh. If it's not even on the, the incorrect list.
2: I like strawberry shortcake, too. I do, too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you have a, des- um, a dessert story?
10: Yes. <laughs> Why doesn't um, that You'll never find these anymore uh, since my father and uncle passed away. They were being made for a while. Um, by the, the person my uncle sold his bakery to, um, but he has since got out of business. Uh, my grandfather came up with the recipe. It was his own little invention. Uh-huh. And they're called hi-hats, and what they are is, picture a round piece of chocolate cake, okay, uh, like a cupcake but bigger. Uh-huh. Probably three times the size of a cupcake, with a little in the top, it's rounded out a little bit. So it doesn't look flat on the top, kind of like a little hole type thing. Okay. But we just lost power for a second, and dogged it like that. Um, if I go out, so we lost power, I'm on a power phone here. It just flickered. Uh, anyway, and then around the outside of that, they had this special... It was like a white type frosting. I don't know how to describe it. Not butterscotch, but it was a, a special type of white frosting with chocolate sprinkles around the top of that, or on the outside of that. And then on top where that hole is in the cake was another gob of frosting. Kind of looks like, it came up like the cool-up. You ever see the cool-up cover oh, it comes up to a perfect tip? Uh-huh. It had the frosting like that on top, and you top it all off with a cherry.
0: I think I'm having the vapors. <laughs> oh, my goodness.
10: Oh, God, they were good.
0: Oh, yes.
10: Oh, yes. <laughs> absolutely yes. I used to live for them as a kid.
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, it sounds wonderful.
10: So do
2: you have the family recipe?
10: Oh, I wish I could find it. I know he's got them somewhere. Um, and that's what I would like to find. My brother wants to find them all and do a... Uh, A A, book.
2: A Vermont cook, a Vermont baking book.
10: Yeah, because he had a bunch of them that he made, my grandfather made. The only problem with his recipes, though, are, uh, they're, uh, like, they're not one dozen donuts, they're eight dozen donuts. Mm -hmm. And you would think, oh, you just divide everything by eight, right? Oh, it doesn't come out the same. Well, I guess
2: you can just tell in the book, uh, you? uh, Treats for a party of eight. Yeah,
10: something like that, yeah. I guess. But, what my brother wanted to do was try to get the book, get the recipes, and then maybe fiddle with the amounts a little bit and see if he can figure it out. Yeah. Because, I mean, Dad had all kinds of stuff, you know. He he had his own, uh, I mean, he used to make uh, just plain donuts that to die for.
2: So, when somebody sells a bakery, do they sell the recipes with them?
10: Yes. Great question. Yes, uh, they do. Okay. Well, I mean, depending, it's usually like a pack. It's a deal.
1: Mm-hmm.
10: You know, if you want to buy them, it probably costs more. Just like if you go into a business and you want to buy the name. Mhm. You know, yeah. a lot of times it, the businesses. It, it makes sense. Yeah. Tell you the name, but they'll, they'll charge you more for it. Right. I know when Dad sold the bakery. When he sold it, he sold it all. He sold the recipes, the machinery, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm was oh. a bakery, everything. Um,
0: Is it still running?
10: My uncle did too. No, no, uh, it didn't run very long. Dad's bakery did not run long at all after he sold it. Matter of fact, he sold it once to a guy who ran it into the ground in 18 months. and got it and bought it back dirt cheap. Like I don't remember what he told me, but it was it wasn't even a quarter what he paid what he sold it for. Built it back up resold it for the same amount within two years. Wow. Yeah.
2: So, Uh, do you have a bakery in in town anymore?
10: No, we don't. Well, yeah, well, I think you going to call it a bakery. It's, uh, these people got this French restaurant and a bakery, but it's a very high class. It's more like a bake slash wine shop. Huh. Interesting. It's not like a, where you go in and buy a dozen cupcakes.
2: Yeah, it's not a true bakery by itself.
10: No, like one piece of. I bought a chocolate piece of chocolate cake there. It was good. That was like six bucks a piece, though. Yeah, a real high end. It's uh, a touristy type thing. Uh, Did you get it for six dollars? A real good piece of chocolate cake. One slice, right? Yeah, one slice. Piece? Yeah. It's like a tourist type type deal, you know. They're very, very fancy pastries and that kind of stuff. Oh, no, something called a no-flour cake. You ever had that? No. It's very thick. I mean, it doesn't look like much of a piece of cake, but you gotta, there's no flour to it, so it's like the, the chocolate is just solid chocolate.
0: I think I want some.
10: It's very good, but boy, I want some. Yeah, it, it takes quite a bit to eat the thing. <laughs> <laughs> It's real, real thick and real, real rich. Um, I had one of those. The only reason I went in there, though, is because I got a uh, a $30 gift certificate. It's not the type of place I could afford to walk in every day and buy something.
0: You can only get five pieces of cake for that, and then you have to pay the tax on top of it.
10: Yeah, that's why I only bought one piece of cake, and I'm saving the rest for their French restaurant they got. Good for you. Yeah, and then they try to eat there, but I hear the same thing at the French restaurant. You go in, you pay a fortune, and you get a tiny piece of meat and some vegetables.
0: Mm, no. Um, I want something on my plate that I can eat and enjoy, and um, I'm afraid that's not that's not the place for me. Unless, no, we
10: got, unless, I got a steakhouse in town.
0: Maybe, maybe they need somebody to taste test the chocolate?
10: Oh, there you go. I'll ask them for you. Yeah. I mean, they just might. Yep. <laughs> There's a big, a good big wine selection in there, too. They have a huge wine shop. I'm not a wine drinker, so I couldn't tell you whether it's good or not. But
0: Did you get more food, then?
10: Our town's becoming real touristy.
1: Oh, gosh.
10: I don't like it. We have a sandwich shop, too, the same way. I mean, the sandwiches are delicious. I mean, they better be for seven fifty-eight bucks a sandwich, you know?
2: So when do the tourists show up? Do they only show up during the fall? When do they actually show up? summer. No, we get them all year round actually. We
10: get a lot more in the summer and fall in this area. Uh Uh-huh. But we get our share during the winter because of skiing.
1: Okay.
10: So they're they're pretty much here all year round. Uh, we're not that far from the slopes. We're like a half hour from either Middlebury or Rutland and there's mountains in both areas, Tillington is one of the biggest in the country for skiing. And we're like a half hour, 40 minutes away. So a lot of people, you know, people that can't afford to stay at the mountain mm-hmm. will come to the Brandon Inn and hang out in Brandon and go ski, you know, leave from here. So we get our share of skiers. Yeah. A yeah. lot of fall people, a lot of summer people.
2: Do you have a lot of bed and breakfast places in the area? Yeah,
10: a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. A lot of bed and breakfasts, a lot of little ends, you know. Uh-huh. It might have four or five rooms available at night, that kind of thing. Uh,
2: what do you, if I came to Vermont, would I feel like I'm in a 1920s, 30s, 40s? What would I feel like? Oh,
10: God, I don't know what to compare it to. Uh-huh. Um, it uh, depends on what part of Vermont you go to, too. Um, I mean, you go to Burlington, it's like you're in the 20th century. I mean, we're in the 20th century everywhere, but we've got Internet everywhere. All our libraries have Internet access. You got all that kind of stuff, Um, but as far as (laughs) mass transit is very limited, Um, there's some in the city, Mm -hmm. you know, buses, that type of thing, Um, but, yeah, normal 20th century, I guess. I I mean, I don't don't know. Fred? Yeah, we drive cars, our roads are (laughs) tar. Fred? Yeah?
0: I'll bet you're in the 21st century.
10: Not 21st century, excuse me. Yes
0: uh oh you poor guy
10: we got cable i mean we, you know we're pretty we're pretty hip i mean there are parts of a lot though that there are towns that uh still that don't have internet um that uh still have uh they have rotary phones, rotary phones that kind of thing
1: uh-huh.
10: uh, there's very few left but there's still a few out there cool um they're out in the booties <laughs> That's um there's a town that I know a friend of mine went through. He said, he never, you know how he got there? He said the main intersection was, all, it was dirt road. There was no tire road in the whole town. He was driving along this dirt road, and all of a sudden he came, went through this town, center of town. There was a store, a post office, a town hall, and a school. He said that was it. Works for me. Yeah, <laughs> I guess the rest of the town must have been kind of spread out around it, you know.
0: Works and, and for me. Living
10: in. Um, But you now we're trying to become. You know, we've got a lot of these people that are they're not working, and now they're moving up here and they're trying to like turn it turn Vermont into a Oh so, like a high class tourist spot or something.
2: Are there any are there any businesses besides tourism in Vermont?
10: Like big business?
2: Uh huh. Uh, yeah, maple,
10: uh, I'm trying ma- to think of what ma- better dairy started in Vermont.
2: Okay. I get maple
10: syrup. The maple syrup's huge. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
10: And dairy, not as big as it used to be, but it's, it's all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daires? it's a really big dairy business. So, um, you know, there's companies that are here, like General Electric's here. Uh, they got two plants in Rutland. Um, there's a forest logging type business. We're big you know we do a lot of wood They used to do a lot of wood I don't know if they still do uh, but no I mean nothing nothing huge really mm-hmm. um, there was you know there's always like like I got it across the road for me I got a place called the Wingman woodcraft that builds furniture nationwide and they probably employ a hundred people uh, GE probably employs five or six hundred. Well, that's probably the biggest would be a place like GE as mm-hmm. far as an employer and we have Walmart, you know, there's stores that are here, but they didn't really start here.
0: Yeah.
10: Um, and we have, uh, like I said, dairy business is going down. The family farm is dying out. Um, but there's what? a couple of bigger farms taking their place.
2: When did they go to Walmart? And, I mean, when I was in MBA school in 93, I was reading the big case that uh, the state of Vermont was keeping Walmart and a lot of the big stores out. When did they finally break down?
10: Well, yeah, they really haven't. It's been a kind of give-and-go. They lost the Walmart. Um, they were supposed to go, I forget, somewhere up near Williston and, uh, it was near the New Hampshire border, and they kept screwing around with these people for years. They wanted certain things in a certain areas or something about the sales tax or something. And finally, Walmart just said to heck with it, and they moved 13 miles to New Hampshire. So that was just five years ago. Mhm. Uh-huh. lost you, that.
2: you have a high tax rate in Vermont?
10: Yeah. Yeah. Property taxes are crazy. Hmm. Um, Yeah, the businesses, they they tax businesses quite a
2: bit. Uh Uh-huh.
3: Hey,
10: come on, build anywhere. You know, we don't care what you do. We just watch your business to, no, know, you can't put a house there. you.